What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. This is that podcast where we do the lists. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. I write for The Wrap. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I write for Slash Film. Uh, you, you say The Iron List, and I think we're going to be talking about the composer Franz List sometimes. Oh, yeah. And if somebody out there wants to use The Iron List as their podcast title, and it's oh, all like about a, Franz List... A, please. Yeah. Yours. That's, you you, you got to spell you, it with you a Z, but yeah, that's yeah, fine. Yeah. That's totally fine. I, um, uh, you, you got to name check us in the first episode. There you go. Where are you going? Um, I uh, I was a nerd. No, you... I know. I know. It's kind of kind of difficult to believe. What? I understand. Uh, I'm still a nerd. Uh, but uh, sorry, bumping the table. Um, I knew a lot of nerds growing up, and I remember going over to a friend's house once, and they had a shopping list up on their fridge, like one of those tear off pads. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had pictures of Chopin. And list on it, and it said Chopin list. Oh, that's cute. That's cute. That's cute. That's, we can all enjoy that. I I love that kind of nerdy crap. I love puns. Like I like, love puns. like a low pun mixed with like yeah. classical music reference. You're, you're a middle aged dad. I'm a middle aged uncle. We're mm. allowed. It's okay. <laughs> anyway, this is the podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where every month Whitney and I do a top ten list. We each do one. Based on a topic that is selected by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, this month, it is the latest in our ongoing series. I really hope we get to finish this someday. Uh, where we are picking the best films that just happen to begin with the letter I. We have done A through A, B, C, D, E, F, H, H already. Mm. And now we're on the letter I. Uh these are fun lists. I like these lists because they give us an opportunity to talk about movies that ordinarily would not even be in the same conversation. Mm. Because usually we talk about, uh, you know, when we do lists of anything, whether it's us or other people, it's usually a little bit more focused on a, a genre or a year or a particular filmmaker or actor or something. And this the the, the just blows the lid off of all of that. And mm. I think that's a, that's a real treat. Um, Again, as always, we are not going to be precious about the, or a, or in this case, an, or, or if it begins le, with the, yeah. or le, uh, because uh, that's not how you would alphabetize something in a bookshelf or right. a store, and nothing pisses me off more than when I go onto like a streaming service. That's not true. A lot of things piss me off more, <laughs> but one of my biggest pet peeves mm is going on to a streaming service like HBO Max, like, oh, what do they have in, like, their Turner Classic movie section? I'm like, oh, this is pretty good, this is pretty good, and then you get to the tease, and it's, and all it's the, the... Yeah. Dudes, it's not that hard. Other we, we streaming did, we figured services out figured how to, how to do, do that. that. Yeah. yeah, what uh, the hell, guys? <laughs> Take the, the easy way out. The, the ones that get me, um, and, and this is a, a bit of a complaint, but... Um, if you're at a video store mm-hmm. or you're just cataloging movies mm-hmm. and you come upon Wolfgang Peterson's film Das Boot... Yes. Yeah. Do you file that under D or under B? I and I appreciate that this feels difficult to some people. It mm. should be under B. Uh-huh. 
I also appreciate that for whatever reason, mm-hmm. a lot of Americans don't even know that much German. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to put it under D, I kind of get it, mm. but it is wrong. Yeah. It is wrong. Uh, fortunately, neither Das nor, nor Boot mm. begin with the letter I, so that's irrelevant today. Oh, yeah. In fact, although, we passed all of that. Although I have one on my list. Uh, it's actually not, it's on my runners up, so I can talk about it now. Uh, but it was uh, the film L'Entreau. It's a French film from oh, 2002. I don't know that one. Um, which translates to The Intruder. Uh, ah. And it was released in, in the United States as The Intruder. So it starts oh, with an I either way. Okay. But in, in French, it's L apostrophe I, long true. Oh. And um, uh, that that would be that. one that you yeah. that a lot of uh, video stores might catalog under L. Yeah. Well, this is why you had video store clerks to explain how the video store clerks screwed up the video so you can mm. find what you're looking right. for. Uh, in any case, uh, these tend to be long podcasts, so we're not going to dally more than we already have uh, i will remind everybody that the way we do lists here at the iron list is a little different from the way most other publications podcasts youtubes mm. uh go about it uh, the majority tend to do uh, a ranked list where your number nine is a movie you think is superior to the number 10 uh this is a top 10 out of a staggering number of movies as indeed they all are uh they're all recommendations. We don't yeah, want you to yeah. see uh, the movie we talk about first that much more than the movie we talk about fifth. We're just going to have a conversation about numbers 10 through 2. They're all a tie for second place. But in the interest of ending with a bang mm. and having... And just, and just you know... I uh, I remember I was writing a top 10 list for a website and I was really struggling. Like, there's so many... Good. It was like it was like a best of the decade list. Oh wow! And I was okay. like, I'm really struggling to keep this down to a top ten. Can I do a top twenty? And I was told by my editor, and it's not necessarily the call I would have made, but I respect it. No, that's the job. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the job is to make a hard call. So we're making a hard call. Our number one is our number one. Yes. But number two and through ten, if you want to call them that, they're all tied for second. They're all great movies. We want you to see every single one. That's the way we do our lists. Yeah. Because honestly, the way we, most of the systems we have in this industry are not well thought out. And we need to start changing them. And we're trying to be an engine of that change. But in any case, um, Whitney? Yes. uh, As we usually do. Uh, why don't we start out with you? What is the first movie no. that just happens to begin with the letter I that you think is no. one of the best? By the way, William didn't do that in a mercenary fashion. Uh, he doesn't choose me so he can go second and hence go last. Uh, because oh, that's not... we, we swap around a lot. Sometimes we choose the same movies and we never know who gets to go last. That's true. So, uh, yeah, that's so, not... This so isn't that's, like screen drafts with strategy it's... there. Because if I... we pick the same movie, we have to go right back to Whitney again. Exactly. Example, so, you know? so the... Yeah, that's... There's no... There's no... The, there, there was no, no... That's irrelevant. Hierarchy going on yeah. here. Um, I want to talk about... Uh, and there's... Yeah, the letter, letter I. Total wide variety of weird mm-hmm. movies. Uh, and I want to start with uh, the earliest film on my list. Okay. And I want to talk about It uh, from 1927. I was about to say. Yeah. Not the one with the killer clown. Okay. There is a TV miniseries of the killer clown, two movies, It and It Chapter 2 with the killer clown. Uh, I almost picked It Chapter 1 because I think in a vacuum, yeah. that movie's really, really, the, really good, but it didn't quite make it. it it's pretty good. It's, it's, yeah. um, it stands on its own. You don't need the second half, which is a really good thing because the second half sucks. Second half sucks. And I think... Uh, it chapter one 
is one of those movies that's going to be way, way better mm. if it's 9 p.m. on a Friday in a rowdy theater full of people. That's true. Because it, it has sort of like a yeah. carnival haunted house vibe it's to a crowd it. And yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, if you ever get a chance, if you miss that in theaters yeah. or whatever, and you ever get a chance to watch like a midnight screening, go. Yeah, go, go see that on the movie. First amazing. But yeah. um, uh, It from 1927 oh. is not, not a horror movie. It's actually a, like kind of a romantic comedy mm-hmm. uh, starring Clara Bow who is known as the It Girl, thanks to this movie. And in yeah. fact, we talk about It Girls and It Guys to this day mm-hmm. because of or this the film. the It and, Crowd. Or the, yeah, um, yeah, because of Clara Bow and because of this, uh, this movie. Um, and It, as it is described in the movie, is that certain je ne sais quoi, mm. that appealing uh, personality that somebody might have, that it goes beyond being physically attractive or mm-hmm. being charismatic. Yeah. It's just it's, it's star quality. It's yes, that that, it's that zazz. star quality. That's yeah. zazz. The, oh, what 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 are the kids calling it these days? I the, don't uh, care. <laughs> riz. They call it riz. No, they don't. They do. It's short for charisma. Stay up, stay up with the slang, man, because people are going to use it in front well, of you. Why you don't, don't want... just call it care? <laughs> because care means something different. So does riz. <laughs> riz. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> people people say Riz, I only think of Rizzo the Rat from the, the Muppets. Mm. Um Yeah, it's it's Riz. It's it's Dazzle. It's, Whatever you uh, say. And um and Clara Bow had it. Had it. Boy uh, did she. Clara Bow, uh silent dazzling young silent movie star. She was in Wings and a lot of other mm. uh, movies besides. Mm. Uh a lot of terrible rumors uh that we still perpetuate to this day. About Clara Bow, uh, the fact that she she evidently hated uh, sound cinema, like when the advent of sound came yeah. along, just a few years after it, uh, she didn't make the cu- she didn't make the cut. She was didn't wasn't able to perpetuate yeah. her movie stardom into the sound era. Yeah, some people did, so, some people didn't. Some people went from being like matinee idols to being character actors. Yeah, yeah. which is an interesting shift mm. that kind of, kind of foisted upon them. Yeah. Yeah. And and sadly, Clara Bow just didn't make the transition. Mm. Uh, and I don't even really know what the real truth is. Uh, some people said that she was a little mentally ill, but I don't know if that's true. Uh, <clears throat> some people say mm. that she had a terrible voice, and uh, and I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Um, but what she did have was a movie star quality. She yeah. was a movie star of the silent era par excellence. And not just because she was you know, pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, she just had that dazzling quality. And uh, in this movie, she plays... It's set in 1927, so we got a lot of depression stuff. Yeah. Uh, and she is... As in the Great Depression, not everyone... Not had, about everyone d- not about depressed. the yeah. quality of depression. Although that was pretty depression. depressing, so yeah. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. she she's... Um, very impoverished. She lives with a uh, roommate, uh, a, si- a single woman with a baby. How scandalous in 1927. That's very scandalous. And uh, she has eyes for, I think it's her manager at uh, like a department store where she works. And he's very, very wealthy. And dating between classes was, is treated in this movie like the ultimate taboo. Like you can't, a poor person and a rich person cannot date. That is yeah. just gauche. Uh, but the, the entire opening of the movie is a date that these two people go on and he doesn't know that she's poor. So, uh, so he's like, ah, oh, this is very nice. Aren't we uh, upper crust? And if you want to know what carnivals looked like and how fucking dangerous they were, <laughs> uh, you can watch all of these sequences at the, the beginning of it. Just a uh, death trap. But then the plot begins because she goes home and there's some, uh, evil social workers who want to sort of invade the impoverished neighborhoods no. and take away, uh, her roommate's baby. Because mm. she she's single, she's poor, she can't take care of it, and she and she's sick. How mm. how can you take care of this baby if you're sick? Mm. And uh, Clara Bow steps up and says, "No, uh, it's my baby. 
Mm. I can, you can't take the baby away. It's mine. Yeah. And of course, when she says that somebody overhears it, it goes back to the boss and now scandal. They think she's the single parent. Right. And this has to, it's all very dated because it's based on social norms that we don't really (laughs) adhere to anymore. But here's what I like about it. Mm. Clara bow. Yeah. And not just her, but the character she plays doesn't take any bullshit. She's like, okay, you're going to reject me just because I have a baby. What? Yeah, and she doesn't even say, "Oh, it's not my baby. We're okay." She says, "No, I'm going to keep on claiming this. This is mine." Mm. And she challenges people: "Are are you going to reject me? Are you going to reject me because of this? I'm I'm dazzling and confident and wonderful, and I'm taking care of people. I'm doing the right thing all across the board. I dare you to say I'm doing something wrong." Yeah, and uh, and that's kind of like the attitude of the whole movie. It's almost there's this this note of defiance to it that I really like, but it's still it was. Co-directed by, uh, I think it was Joseph von Sternberg. Ah. He's not credited. I think somebody else is credited, but I think he did a, a, a lot of the directing. <clears throat> and, um, uh, and and you know the the tone because you know Joseph von Sternberg did a lot of like sort of light, uh, wonderful romantic comedies, and uh, but also like a lot of terse films as well. And and I think the tone is kept really light throughout because of that kind of deft direction. Yeah. Uh, it's talked about a lot. Yeah. A lot of people know it because of the phrase it girl, or they yeah. might know about Clara Bow, but until you actually see it, you won't get it. You won't. Well, other... you can see other Clara Bow movies. A lot of people well, yeah, have seen Wings, for example. That's she's true. wonderful in that movie. She's one, but she's a, a small part of Wings. Like it's she about... steals it though. Whenever she's on screen. She's yeah, magnetic. That's true. I, I grant you this. I've actually never seen all of it. Oh, okay. so I, I can't, I can't speak to it uh, in great detail. I can't speak to Clara Bow's star power. She is, fucking phenomenal and she's the type of person that if we had them today I think she would still be have that magnetic quality mm-hmm. um, I apologize for my uh, I interviewed Kermit the Frog once that was a highlight of my goddamn <laughs> life by the way that That's was one good. of the coolest things ever I've, and I've interviewed Kermit as well it was, I know, really, it was really really great and there was there was a cute bit where uh, we were just talking and he coughed a little and he said oh sorry I had a me in my throat Oh, isn't that adorable? Yeah. So I want I want to I want to say I have a me I, uh, in my throat. Sorry about that. I I uh, <coughs> not not to brag, but I I kind of caught Kermit a little off guard. Oh, no. with, with my interview question. Oh yeah. Because uh, you know, a movie had come out, and I, I sort of sat down. I looked Kermit right now. Because you, you look at Kermit. Yeah, you don't look. And, at the, and it's amazing. You would think to yourself, "Oh, I would look at the puppeteer." You don't. You think you will, you literally will not. Mm. Once they're in Muppet mode, that's a Muppet now. Yeah. <laughs> that's not per se. But, uh, but I, I looked Kermit right, right in his little beady eyes and I said, in, in your new movie, you know, the, I think it was for Muppets Most Wanted. It's like, mm. you, you play a character named Kermit the Frog. Right. But that's clearly not the person I'm talking to now. What, how is that Kermit... How much of that Kermit is you? And, and, and like, Kermit kind of, like, sat upright a little bit. Like, like, like yeah, I'm interested. It's like, oh, that's a good question. Well, he is mostly me. Because <laughs> clearly that's, like, a fictionalized version of your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. This is not who you are right now. The, yeah, the that's Kermit a fictional in the Kermit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so how do you separate the fictional Kermit the Frog from the Kermit I'm sitting in front of? And, and it's like... I hadn't even really thought of that before. <laughs> I, I got him with a good one. I had a great yeah. Kermit question. We'll get back to the movies, but we're talking about interviewing Kermit now. Mm-hmm. We, we, we Let us have this. Um, I interviewed Kermit, and I asked him a question I've been wanting to ask Kermit the Frog mm-hmm. 
for a long time. <laughs> uh, and it, the, the the question evolved a little bit, like over time. But by the time I'd gotten to it, uh, they just they'd done the Muppet the Muppets. Uh, which was very like the Muppet movie, where it's like kind of a road trip movie. And if you recall, they followed the Muppet movie with the Great Muppet Caper, which was a caper movie, a mm-hmm. crime heist movie. Uh, and they had followed the Muppets with Muppets Most Wanted, which was also a, a, crime caper, also yeah. a heist movie. And I said, you, you, you followed the Muppets with another Muppet Caper. Hmm. For your next film, are you going to take Manhattan back from Jason Voorhees. Because <laughs> Jason took Manhattan. Because Jason yeah. took Manhattan. And people don't know this. He took it from the Muppets. They were still in possession. <laughs> they had it first. And uh, Kermit to his, didn't miss a beat. He said, no, he can have it. Cute. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, my, my first pick, it's also an old romantic comedy. But right. it's also, it's and it's one that... Um, I've never heard anyone say an unkind word about it, but I've also mostly never heard anyone talk about it. Uh, it is a wonderful film starring uh, Veronica Lake and Frederick March called I Married a Witch. Oh, that's a wonderful film. It's a great yeah. movie. I, had I, I saw it for the first time re- kind of recently. Same. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think we did a podcast on it a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And th- this movie is absolutely delightful. And apparently it is the DNA for what would become Bewitched. Yeah. Uh, and, and what would become the uh, Bell Book and Candle, and then it would become the witch. But it was basically started this idea of what if a normal guy was married to a very liberated magic wielder mm. in a relatively conservative times? Uh, Frederick March plays the descendant of someone who uh, burned witches at the stake many years ago. And this movie is one of those many movies that has the very problematic fundamental premise that the Salem Witch Trials actually found real witches. Which is pretty fucked, let's be fair. I I understand the impulse that um, these were uh, women who were notoriously victimized. Yes. And And they want to empower them by giving them actual actual powers. It's like, okay, you're actually empowering the victims and giving them tools of vengeance. So I understand why they would do that. But at the same time, time, in so doing, you're proving the Puritans right. Yes, and saying this mass murder was justified. It yeah, wasn't, so... it never was. That part is bullshit. I'll grant you this. But they move on from it pretty quickly. Basically, she cur- they cursed his entire family so that no one in that family would ever be happy in love. It is a, like a hundred, like not a hundred, like dozens of generations of miserable marriages. <laughs> and Frederick March, he's about to run for office. He's in a marriage. He's getting ready to go into a marriage of total convenience. Hmm. Just some wealthy guy's daughter or some senator's daughter, and it's a it's a power move. She doesn't care for him, but they're both, you know, we're going to get something out of it. Uh, by sheer chance, the uh, witch, played by Veronica Lake, who is gorgeous, uh, and her father, they happen to be busted out of this, I think it was like this haunted tree that they were stuck in. And they decide, oh, let's fuck with him. Let's fuck with him as hard as we possibly can. And so they decide to make him even more miserable by basically screwing with his marriage. And so she engineers, I think she sets a building on fire and then puts herself in the middle of the building without any clothes so that he he has to rescue her. But then there's like a photo op with him and a naked Veronica Lake, which honestly, pretty tawdry for code Hollywood. Because in the production code, it's pretty sexy for that time. This was like the 
It was the forties. Yeah, it was the forties. They got away with a lot in this movie. And like, she's like naked. Forty-two. She's naked in his bed, and he's trying to say, "No, listen, I, 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 you can stay here because you have nowhere to go. I think you might have amnesia or something, so you can stay in my room for a while, but nothing is going to happen." And but she's kind of trying to seduce him and then we cut to a clock and then it cuts to the next morning and he's they've been talking all night and he's deeply in love with her <laughs> but then his fiance shows up and supposed to get married that day and then she sees the naked woman upstairs and it's all a fucking mess but it turns into a real mess when veronica lake decides she actually does like him <laughs> and now she actually wants to marry him and things get even more complicated and magical so if you if you like Bewitched or if you like Practical Magic or Bell Book and Candle or any of those types of movies or if you like Hocus Pocus even, it's a wonderful Halloweeny rom com with I want to be honest here Veronica Lake is she she's got an iconic look and I think a lot of people would recognize that look as an old school Hollywood look yeah, the the hairdo the, the slinky dress the hairdo yeah. was huge I feel like not enough people have actually watched her movies. Like well, you, she, you might have seen Sullivan's Travels. She's a brilliant comedian. She's a brilliant yeah. comedian. Like you might have seen Sullivan's Travels. That one's reasonably well seen, but mm-hmm. a lot of people just don't watch old movies at all. I Married a Witch is an even better introduction to Veronica Lake than Sullivan's Travels, where she is, you know, she's not the focal point of the plot. Here she shines. <laughs> it's just a dazzling comedy with great performances across the board. Robert Benchley's in it as well, and so much yeah, sucker I... for Robert Benchley. So it's a it's an absolute delight. Yeah, I, I Married a Witch is. Just terrific. It's yeah. just great. Yeah. If you've never um, seen it, do. It's gonna, You're going to love it. Well, I, I have another uh, classic romantic comedy, so we'll just stay on that mm-hmm. same tack, and you'll probably guess I this one's coming. I think it might be on yeah, as well. It, it's, uh, it's It Happened One Night. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, is, uh, on, without argument, one of the best and most important movies ever made. Um, Certainly one of the most ripped off. It's... it's it is one of those fulcrum points in cinema. It's like a, like Alien or something. Um, if if you lift it out of film history, the rest of anything that comes after it falls apart. Yeah. Um, it's it's about a uh, wealthy young woman played by Cla- Claudette Colbert, uh, betrothed to marry somebody she doesn't want to marry, and um, she runs uh, off to be with she, another she, guy. She, 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 run, a, she yeah. runs off and uh, is sort of do, doesn't know. The lay of the land. Yeah, she's she very know pampered. How to, she doesn't know yeah. how to get around. She's always been very pampered in her life, and uh, she get uh, accumulates a, a caddish kind of journalist. Mm-hmm. It's played by Clark Gable. Yes, and he's going to help her like on her journey, but he's also going to financially benefit from this. Yeah, because so he's, he's going to write a story about he's, it. He, so he's he's collecting facts, and of course, on their way, they fall. Uh, you, you can you can be cute about it and say they fall in love. They want to fuck. They want to uh, fuck it's, so hard. It's it it is about lust. It and, is. Uh, but it's, it happened one night. Mm. It is fucking. <laughs> the end of the movie. I will just say this because it's romantic comedy. They don't die at the end. Um, it happened one night. That's what they meant. That's the thing yeah. that happened one night. Well, they, they say in dialogue, it's like, when did you fall in love? Well, it happened one night. That's the kind of the cute uh, version of it. And it's Frank Capra, so he's, yeah. he's, he's not a lascivious filmmaker. He's you know, like, he can be tawdry, though. A like, little like, bit. Like the scene in bit. It's a Wonderful Life where uh, James oh, where Stewart she's is, in the bushes, she, she's in the yeah. bushes naked, and he's like, well, a guy could take advantage of a situation yeah. like this. My James Stewart sounds like Don Knotts. I have come to terms <laughs> with this. I cannot do James Stewart. It always turns into Don Knotts. But, uh, yeah. Uh, and the the mo- of course the most uh, notorious thing that happened in this uh, film was mm. uh, they have to stay in like 
campgrounds and traveling cabins, like, like yeah. a little like little a motel room, basically motel rooms. But uh, this is the 1930s. These things are really, really teeny tiny. Uh, they have to share a bedroom with two beds in the same, like opposite ends of the same room. How do they undress? Uh, and uh, Claudette Col- Colbert is like very arrogant. She doesn't want to turn away. It's like you're not going to undress in front of me. Well, let me show you how a man undresses. Clark Gable says, and he starts to take off his shirt. Yeah, he takes off his shirt, and he has no undershirt underneath. You can now, just see his bare chest. Now, at the time, that was weird. Yeah, undershirts were really popular. Fashion choices uh, were much more like there were some very hard and fast. I remember there was this one Hitchcock movie. I think it was Saboteur. Where a guy was on the run, because mm. of course it's a Hitchcock movie, it's a guy on the run. But in the description, like, five foot nine, brown hair, no hat. Mm. <laughs> like, oh suspect, God, suspect people hatless, stand out. Yeah. Uh, so no so yeah, undershirt, people wore undershirts, yeah. that was standard. Uh, it, it's been said that uh, undershirt sales declined after the popularity of the movie. That Sadly, that's not true. Oh, uh, it's, but print it's, the legend. Print the, but print the legend because that's more fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't wear an undershirt you get to see Clark Gable is, is, is anyone up. who's listening to this wearing an undershirt now no it's true <laughs> <laughs> okay there you go That's... it was all Clark Gable <laughs> it took a bit but it happened um, Frank Capra is just one of the great American filmmakers mm-hmm. uh, even though he's not American though he's not American no yeah. he's, he's Italian I, th- but, uh, I think he might have gotten citizenship eventually but not, not no, he, he, he was an American citizen eventually yeah. but yeah, he was yeah. born in Italy yeah um uh, but thanks to films like It Happened One Night, yeah. thanks to films like uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, yeah. thanks to films like uh, It Could Happen to You, or, or uh, uh, um, Mr. Deeds. Mr. Deeds goes, to, go, Deeds goes to Town. Yeah. Uh, American Madness. Just I did, love American, American Madness. Ma- yeah. If you ever That's one see, of his darker movies, but yeah. If you ever want to see a movie, you know that scene in It's a Wonderful Life where there's a run on the bank? That's the, That's the whole, whole movie, movie of American Madness. <laughs> American Madness is that as yeah. an entire super intense film. They should remake that. It would work great. Oh, just yeah. like, oh that would be wonderful. Yeah. Just, just watch the original. I know. Discover, would, discover that one. It, we, I'm just saying you yeah. could adapt it to today pretty easily is my point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not all of his films were hits. Uh, don't watch The Bitter Teat of General Yen. Mm. But um, uh, It Happened One Night is... It, it, it's just one of the building blocks of all cinema, the way you yeah. think of romantic comedies, the way yeah. they function, the way the characters meet, the way they kind of hate each other at first, but learn to you know, grow to love each other over the course yeah. of the movie. Uh, the way a lot of romantic comedies take place on the road where the characters yeah. are kind of isolated from other characters. All of that was yeah. born, not some of it was merely popularized, but a lot of it just started with yeah. it happened well, one night. It, again, I've talked about this a lot before. When the the movies that create uh, a lot of copycats, a lot of the, the movies that create a whole subgenre, basically, mm. or in this case, a genre, uh, they're rarely the first one to do it. What they're what they are usually is the first one to do it in a way that's easy to copy, and you can take the beats from it happened one night, and you can find mm. them. In, you can find them in Spaceballs. For fuck's sake. Like, they're just everywhere. <laughs> we're, we're, we're on the road together. We hate each other. We grow to like each other, besides, you know, in spite of ourselves. Towards the end, it looks like we can just be together, but something gets in the way, and now I don't know if I can trust this person anymore, and at the last minute, it all works out. I mean, shit, that's... what? How many movies are that? That's French Kiss. It's, that's like, it's it, every single romantic comedy that, was, that has been released since 1934. Yeah, it's like trying uh, to find a slasher after Halloween that isn't at least in some way... Mm. owing a debt to Halloween. You're not going to find it. There were rom-coms before this. They just didn't adhere to this formula. Mm. The formula became the thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, and 
and it works. It's great. Oh, Even no, it's, it's, it's original form. It's not like it's, it's not like you look at it. It's like, oh, this is so tired. We like that formula, and it's one of those formulas we don't mind repeated because it always satisfies. It, we don't mind it repeated, and it's one of those things that was so. I mean, I, I hate I hate to sort of like dump all of this on Frank Capra or one movie, but I think yeah. it, it just nailed it so well. Yeah, and it happened one night that it hasn't yet really been. Uh, innovative beyond. Like, there hasn't been yeah. something to come along that really improved on the formula that makes it happen one night seem lesser. It's still yeah. just as exciting like, and romantic and sexy Adjustments and have been made, romantic comedy subgenres have been mm-hmm. developed, but this exact format is still yeah. used. I, I remember, um, I've talked about this before, uh, the first time I saw uh, Martin Brest's film Beverly Hills Cop mm-hmm. with Betty Murphy. Kind of, a, it's about a, a cop from, it's from Detroit. He's Detroit. It's from Detroit, yeah. and he comes to Beverly Hills to investigate a, a, a murder murder of his of a friend of his. And uh, it's sort of a lot, a lot of fish out of water humor. He's very irreverent, uh, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of L.A. humor. Like, yeah. Los Angeles is weird. They eat sushi and wear shark skin. Yeah. Um, everybody's rich. Isn't that odd? Uh, and <clears throat> that formula had been taken by other cop movies after sure. it yeah. and improved upon. So they're actually, like, sharper t- with better stories and a lot more action mm-hmm. and, like, sort of the fish-out-of-water humor worked a lot better in movies that came after Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. So you go back and you watch the original, and it actually does seem kind of, like, tired and Well, it's, it's shabby is what it yeah, is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the raw concept, and there's highlights in it, but, mm-hmm. like, it really does feel like it's a rough outline and Eddie Murphy just riffed a lot. And Eddie Murphy could get away with that, and that movie was a huge hit, and there's no denying that. But... Yeah. Uh, one other thing about it happened one night that I think is wonderful. Um, it's where we get Bugs Bunny from. That's right. Uh, There's a scene where Cary Grant has to pretend to be like a shady character. And he's like eating carrots and he's trying to like convince this guy that he's really dangerous. And he's coming up with like fake gangster names. And one of the ones he comes up is like, yeah, and, uh, and then Bugs Bunny over there is trying to dump like, What? Yep. I remember yeah. watching, I saw this for the first time in a theater, like, I don't know, like 15, 20 years ago. And I remember, no one had told me that. And I was like, <laughs> what? And I was like, and I didn't have a smartphone at the time. So I was like, I couldn't look up. When was Bugs Bunny invented? Like, holy shit. It's kind of like the next week, really. Yeah. Um, I, I hadn't seen it happen one night when I came across that piece of trivia because yeah. I, I was much more interested in Bugs Bunny when I was a kid. Sure, so, of course. So, you know, I watched these old documentaries and here's how, um, Maybe it was Bob Clampett. I forgot which uh, which of the animators it was that first drew Bugs Bunny. Uh, I'm looking it up right but, now so um, I can figure it out. I, I know there were sort of like proto-rabbit characters. But yeah, the, the sort was of... originally voiced by Mel Blanc, but I'm trying to see what yeah. I can find. Well, Mel yeah. Blanc, yeah, did yeah. most and of the And yeah, he didn't appear until 1938. So, okay, yeah, so this, four, so four years later. It happened was a huge yeah. hit and would have been on around for a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just uh, they showed stills from it happened one night in the shot of uh, Clark Gable eating the carrot. Uh, and it's like, yeah, they, they decided to sort of model this wisecracking uh, sort of city-dwelling rabbit character. Looks like the Clark first Gable. person to animate uh, Bugs Bunny was actually Ben Hardaway. Oh, I don't know Ben so Hardaway. I think, yeah, I, I think, uh, you, know, you know, Tex Avery and Bob Clampett and such probably put their spin on it afterwards. Yeah, yeah. The, the earliest versions of all those cartoon characters are a little different from the ones yeah, that yeah. became the uh, standard. If if you saw if you remember seeing Bugs Bunny cartoons where he was really wrinkly, yeah. that was Bob Clampett. Oh, Bob. <laughs> Bob Clampett was insane. He was a weird <laughs> animator. Anyway, we should we should move on. Uh, and and as you mentioned, mm. uh, this this fucks with our system because normally I would go next, but I had it happen one night as well. All so right, you get well, to go again. Yeah. Okay, um, let's see, do I have any, like, other old 
I have a few other romance. I have another comedy on my list. Or you just okay. keep it with a couple other comedies. I, I think actually, I suspect I know what it might be. Um, it's not just a mad world. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mad, 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 mad world. And I think it's kind of funny. And I don't think it's kind of sad because it's a comedy. <laughs> it's it's not just a comedy. It's the end of comedy. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Uh is 190 minutes of lunacy just like cocaine fueled cartoon insanity yeah uh it start the premise starts out pretty simply yeah uh jimmy durante Mm -hmm. runs his car off the road and a small group of recognizable comedians yeah uh stop their car they're on the road nearby they stop their cars they go down to see if he's okay And and he's dying his foot is by a bucket. This will be important later. <laughs> uh, and he's he's laying there, and uh, who's there? It's um, uh, uh, Sid Caesar. Sid Caesar. Sid Caesar's there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Banks. Jonathan Winters. Jonathan Winters. Uh, and uh, Buddy Hackett Banks. and Mickey Rooney are there. Okay. And uh, no, Jonathan. It's Jonathan Winters. No, I'm trying to remember who. Okay. I'm trying to think of who Jonathan. And Phil Banks Silvers is. is there. Yeah. No, Phil Silvers is going to later. Isn't isn't he's one of the originals? No, he's one of the later. He's like, now you told me it was Shelley. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, he's that's later. Phil Silvers. Oh, okay. okay, I'm pretty sure he's later. But uh, while and, and Ethel Ethel Mormon is there, so. of course. And they're all uh, they're all sort of gathered around uh, Jimmy Durante, and he's, he's laying on the desert. He looks up at the sky, and says, "I, there's a lot of money out there, and I, it's like I buried it. I, I buried it. It states away. It's at this park." Mm. Miles and miles away. Uh, and Jonathan I buried... Banks was on Breaking Bad. That's what I was doing. <laughs> Jonathan okay. Banks. I don't know. Jonathan I don't know. Banks. Is Jonathan? What do you want from me? Jonathan Winter is a famous comedian from 1963. He's um, fucking funny is what he was. Uh, and he says, I buried it under a big W. And then that bucket kicks it. <laughs> kicks the bucket. Get it? <laughs> That's the level of humor we're dealing with. Uh-huh. And they all say, well, we should just go back to our cars now. Mm-hmm. They look suspiciously at each other. What are we going to do? Well, I guess we'll just go on our way. They run back to their cars and they begin racing toward the money. Mm-hmm. That's the plot of the movie. That's all, that's well, it. That's, 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 that's what kicks it off. And then doing. gradually, because they're all racing to reach it first. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the film, they keep running into other people. Yeah. And they're trying to like steal their cars or steal their airplanes or something. And over the course of the film, and, and everyone's a super famous celebrity. Yeah. Uh, they keep somehow spilling the beans and now those people are also hunting after the money as well. Yeah. Until by the end of the movie, literally every human being in America is, is like converging <laughs> on this beach in like bewildering avarice. And it is absolutely... It, it, the way it builds, because it starts, you said yourself, it starts kind of normal. You know, mm-hmm. that could be a plot of a thriller. That could, you can see a Coen Brothers movie, yeah. like a blood symbol, dark Coen Brothers movie doing that. It very quickly starts escalating. As I One of the things I love is movies where you can't quite tell uh, it, when it, it turned so, into madness. Um, right at the start, Mickey Rooney and Buddy Hackett, Ethel mm-hmm. Merman, Sid Caesar, Milton Berle, not Milton Phil Berle. Yeah, okay. I knew, and, I knew and Phil Spencer Tracy is there as well. Yeah, but no, but he's a, he's a detective. He's not there at the beginning. You're right. He's, yeah. yeah. That's right. He's, he's, he's the detective he's, on the hunt. He's Captain Culpepper. That's it. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's like the one voice of, of, of reason mm. trying to keep all of this mad, mad, mad madness mm. at bay. 
Um, but like, yeah, I like movies where you can't quite tell exactly when madness overtook the cast, like needful things or something like that. Uh, this one, it happens almost immediately. They, Jonathan they, they Winters. They go insane. They, greedy with, rage, wrathful with greed. There's so many incredibly brilliant, hilarious sequences in this, but my favorite one actually happens really early. Mm. It's when Jonathan Winters goes to a gas station. I think the Three Stooges are working there. Um, is that where the Three Stooges are in that That's movie? where. That's yeah. when Jonathan Winters comes in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so Jonathan Winters is, is there. He's, he's the gas station okay. attendant. So he's a gas station uh, attendant, and then... The, the Three Stooges are in it, but they only have like a, a little cameo. Yeah. It's not till later in the movie. Okay, yeah. I remember it being early in the film. Jonathan Winters is a gas station attendant. Um, he goes from being just a regular kind of nice guy to the Hulk. He <laughs> smashing smashes through up the entire walls. He smashes an entire <laughs> building all by himself. And when that happens, we're like 20 minutes into this mm. three-hour movie. It gets wilder from there. Mm. It's uh, it's a really... A, it's, it's an absolute miracle that this movie, A, exists, <laughs> B... Is consistently funny with this it's, many X factors. Yeah, it, it really didn't couldn't necessarily withstand it. I, I, I withstand. That's a good word. <laughs> Sustain, withstand. Well, yeah. we, we can withstand things. Um, uh, it's okay. I've, I've been stumbling over all my words tonight. Um, yeah. I, I feel like watching it's a mad, 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 mad world. Mm-hmm. It's it's like trying to eat a whole cake. Like so, it's awesome. It's, it's like this is really great, <laughs> but I like. Or, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever, um, try, this may sort of just be betraying my age, because what? I can't eat a whole order of pancakes. Especially, like, a tall stack of pancakes. Okay, well, like, how tall are we talking, like, here? But, like, five pancakes. Oh, that's a, that, that's a little dense. I can it's, it's, a, it's a little dense. Like you, It was, like, three, I'd say. I think you could manage. You like pancakes at first, but after a while, it's like, this is still sweet. Yeah. This is still sweet. Like, it's not getting easier to eat. It actually gets harder as you go. I usually like when I have, like, a bunch of foods on my plate to eat, like, one at a time. Like, I mm-hmm. eat all my lima beans and all my rice and all whatever. Like, I I, I can't do that with pancakes. Mm-hmm. It's just after a while, it's like I need savory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you, I eggs. Remember, thank I remember you for saving uh, me. Back to the pancakes. Watching a TV show about a guy who does eating contests. He had to eat a bunch yeah. of pancakes. It's like, yeah. how are you going to eat all those pancakes? You can't fit it in your body. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know what will help me is if I eat more food. Because I need bacon, like something yeah. sa- something salty, to just sort of cut all that sweetness. That that is the experience mm-hmm. of it. watching it's a mad 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 world. You're you're eating five gigantic ultra sweet pancakes, mm-hmm. and they know just when to drop in the bacon, yeah, to break it. But you're still being a complete glutton. You're just eating all of this wonderful sweet sticky insanity, yeah. and it just doesn't let up. It keeps getting more and more crazy, yeah. and you think it's like going to slow down at some point. Somebody's going to learn a lesson, or somebody's going to give a speech, or here's why I really need the money. No, greed <laughs> is it. Yeah, it's, it's actually very, stu- it's actually yeah. very cynical film. Yeah, yeah. Human nature. It's really great, and and everybody's trying to con each other. They find the money, and they're still trying to con each other. Oh, they God. find the money, and it keeps going. Oh no, it's not the end wilder. of the movie. It goes, yeah. it goes really well. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. Uh, a, a quick thing about eating contests because you, you mentioned something, and I, uh-huh. uh, if you're a fan of regular show, you know the secret to eating like the Brenny part. Uh-huh. Like the part that's actually gonna like fill you up, and if you only have so much like liquid, you know mm. it's gonna be a real problem. Put it in your water glass. Just soak it up. Soak it up, and then it's like soft and mushy, and it's not as like. I mean, the point isn't to enjoy yourself. The point is yeah. to win. Just so we're clear here, I'm just to enjoy yourself. You're not gonna do that. I'm so glad we have healthy attitudes towards food. <laughs> uh, no, but it, it 
let me just, uh, and, and of course, any description of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World has yeah. to uh, l- just list the cast because... Oh my God. Yeah, yeah it's one so of the... So we, we already mentioned... Possibly the greatest cast yeah, ever We already assembled. mentioned Spencer Tracy, Moulton Burl, Sid Caesar, yeah. Buddy Hackett, Ethel Merman, Mickey Rooney, uh, and Phil Silvers. Yeah. Terry Which Tom- would be enough. That's Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. It's like some, some of the most best known, funniest comedians of yeah. their day. That's like clue and a half. Like, it's great. But, but we, yeah, we have... Uh, a wonderful uh, panoply of supporting mm. players and every recognizable comedian from the time. Buster Keaton is in there. Yeah. The Three Stooges are in there. Uh, uh, Don Knotts is in there. Yeah. Uh, Joe E. Brown is in there. Jim Backus is in there. Andy Devine? Anybody? Yeah. Maybe yeah. not. Uh, <laughs> Peter Falk as a cab driver in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, Edward Everett Horton is is yeah. in there. Uh, I, I mentioned Don Knotts. I'm just looking through the list now. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember. Um, Carl um, Reiner is, uh, shows up. Carl Reiner. Oh, the guy who was um, uh, in the producers. Uh, uh, the hippie. Oh, Dick Sean. Dick Sean. Dick Sean has a big part Dick Sean's in hilarious. It, yeah. Actually, possibly even finer than Dick Sean is the girl who plays his girlfriend, who just literally dances while staring <laughs> into the middle distance and that's her whole role and she's amazing he's completely deadpan about yeah. the whole thing yeah uh let's see jack benny has an uncredited cameo mm-hmm. um uh, jerry lewis has an uncredited mm-hmm. cameo barbara pepper doodles weaver um a uh, doodles weaver i learned he's he worked with um uh, uh, spike jones he did a lot of comedy records back yeah. in like the, the 30s and I learned recently that Doodles Weaver is the uncle of Sigourney Weaver. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. So if you listen to Doodles Weaver records, like, hey, Doodles, I, I heard you got a week back. When'd you get a week back? Oh, about a week back. <laughs> Sensationally. <laughs> that, that's the kind of uh, Doodles that's, Weaver joke. That's good, clean comedy, that is. Yeah. Everyone can enjoy that. Yeah. Um, Doodles, your hair is getting thin. Well, who wants fat hair? <laughs> well, if you uh, want, uh, uh, I didn't put it to Mad, 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 Mad World because I knew you would. Well, uh, that was a safe bet. In fact, I'm surprised it's, it's not your number one. It's not my number I'm one. I'm actually it's, surprised. It's, it should be. It's wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have the stamina yeah. to make it through, it's a mad, 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 mad world. I totally get it. Um, well, my next pick is a film that is almost as as bonkers okay. as it's a mad, 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 mad world. I think it might be the last comedy on my list. Uh, well, kind of. But uh, it is one of the most inventive films of the 1980s. It's an Academy Award winning film. It was a bomb when it came out. It, it, it is an Academy Award winning film? It is an Academy okay. Award winning film. Uh, and it is Joe Dante's Inner Space. Oh, I haven't seen this since I was a kid. Uh, Inner Space is one of those like big budget studio movies because it had like really innovative visual effects. It had like shrinking technology and like people like morphing into other things. Like it's really bizarre and inventive. Um, it's one of those Hollywood movies where you're, you're wondering if like the studio executives who would normally try to flatten this out into something really generic, if this is, if they actually did put their hands on this and it started somehow even weirder, because mm-hmm. there's literally no way they should have gone through the studio system. It's too fucking weird. So the, the plot of the movie, well, I mean, you could say that about most of Joe Dante's movies. That's true. But usually there's like some kind of like straightforward hook. Like it's about little monsters done okay it's a horror comedy easy inner space i think you're being a little dismissive of gremlins i'm not there, being but dismissive yeah. i'm just saying i can kind see how, it. How, how weird that movie really was it is very weird but i can see the simple elevator pitch that got okay. an executive to say yes to it inner space stars dennis quaid as a test pilot who is going to be shrunk down to the size of a microbe and placed inside of a rabbit and they're gonna just see if they can do that for fun uh, and uh, while that is 
happening during the experiment, a bunch of guys come in and try to steal the experiment. And a scientist grabs the syringe with Dennis, with Dennis Quaid in it. And he's like running away and he's like about to be murdered and he is murdered. And then, but just before he does, he stabs a guy who works at like a grocery store played by Martin Short mm. and injects him with Dennis, uh, with Dennis Quaid. And now, and De- so Dennis Quaid thinks he's in the rabbit for the yeah. the first part of the movie, and then eventually he figures out he's he's in a human being, and he's in a huge dork. Hmm. Now this isn't like a Jerry Lewis kind of dork thing. Like God knows Martin Short has played it a lot broader than this. This is actually him maybe at his most everyman. But Mar- Martin Short, by the way, is a utterly brilliant comedian, <laughs> completely brilliant comedian, one of the best, and. Here, he, like, when when Dennis Quaid figures out how to, like, attach a radio receiver to, like, his inner ear so he can finally hear him, and then Martin Short just hears this voice, and he's like, oh my god, I'm possessed! Freaks out, finally he's able to communicate with this person inside of his body who can, like, do things to his body and change it. Like, this is, like, if Jim Carrey did this in the 90s, it would be completely of a piece. He finds a way to, like, change his face so he can impersonate criminals, so he can figure out who is behind all this, so they can, like, get Dennis Quaid out of Martin Short's body and, like, mm. save him. And <sighs> he, he turns into um, uh, the doctor from Voyager. What's his name? Robert Picardo. He turns into Robert Picardo. And so Robert Picardo has to play Who's Martin in... Short playing Robert Picardo. And yeah, that's and, a really and, difficult thing to do. Robert Picardo was in a couple of Joe Dante movies. Sure. Like they, they worked together a lot. Yeah, no, he, he was in Gremlins 2, I believe. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, he, was the one, he was the one who ended the movie having sex with a gremlin. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I, uh, I, I saw that last night. I saw Gremlins 2 last night on the big screen. Oh, nice. At the New Beverly. It was a double feature with Freaked. Nice. Uh, I've never seen Freaked on the big screen. Th- that was my first time as well. Oh. Those are two of my favorite movies. Oh. Jerry, I'm not gonna lie. Um, th- like th- this is the kind of movie where because it's their shrinking technology, like later on in the film, uh, like the villains are like accidentally shrunk to like fifty percent, and now they're just running around trying to strangle everybody from the back seats of cars. Um, the visual effects are absolutely ast- astounding. They still hold up really good today. It's such a clever, fun sci-fi concept, and they come up with everything they could possibly do. It doesn't feel like... You know, nowadays, it feels like they hold back a lot. Like, oh, save it for the sequel. No, no, no. We're putting everything in here. Everything we could possibly think to do with this premise, we're going to do. Martin Short's really, really funny. Dennis Quaid... This, there was a moment where Dennis Quaid was, like, the sci-fi hero. Mm. With, like, this and Dreamscape and Enemy Mine. He was the best. Um, I love Inner Space. It's super-duper weird. And it Good. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just a Joe Dante fan. I, I think yeah. I've put, I think I've put his films on, on these lists like three or four times now because I'm pretty sure we both did Gremlins too. I, I think I, Gremlins two is one of those ones where yeah. uh, it's like you don't need us to talk about Gremlins two again. Not. So yeah, we left. But it it's off, still one of the perfect yeah. movies. I'm I'm 99 sure I put Explorers. Okay. On my list, which, which I haven't which, seen, I haven't seen Explorers, yeah, and even so. Joe Dante, like that got taken away from him in post. Like he he was not happy with the way it turned out. I still think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I love Joe Dante. I couldn't resist. All right, moving on. Uh, moving on. Let's see. You chose a science fiction. I have a science fiction movie. Um, I have Jack Arnold's The Incredible Shrinking Man on my list. That was my number one. Was it? Yeah. Oh well, I don't. I hate when I do that, especially yeah. this early in the show. I kind of thought, okay, you know what? I'm so sorry. We're gonna, yeah. we're gonna we are going to put a pin in that. All right. And we will go back to me, I guess. Okay. And we will talk about the Incredible Shrinking Man later. It's really good. 
There, done. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I recently got the Criterion Blu-ray of that one. Yeah, you also picked the uh, sci-fi shrinking movie. Uh, oh, that was a good yeah. segue. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll you, move you on. You kind of led me on. I kind of did. Uh, yeah. I kind of did. I don't know. I don't know what. It, I guess it was just thinking comedy, and I really didn't have. Uh, I, well, I guess I could have done this. Um, the comedy crime movie is a delicate art. Yeah, because you can't have it be about like a really serious crime. It's got to be a crime that the audience isn't mad about. Yeah, you know, like you know, it's, it's like oh, we're gonna. But they can't. They can't yeah. be somebody who, like kills dogs. You know, yeah. not not something that like, uh, that somebody would just. Hate film, you for. I can't remember if I put it on my H list or if it just made my runners up. But there's a really wonderful heist movie from the '60s called How to Steal a Million, hmm. where Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole have to steal a statue from a museum, but it's a fake. And she's trying to steal it before they analyze it and find out it's a fake. And then her forger father would go to jail. So stealing it, not a big deal. Okay. Like it's really not a big deal. No one, no one's being, no one's being screwed over by this. Yeah, the, the thieves have to be honorable or fun or appealing yeah. in some way. Uh, and in the original Italian job, mm. they are absolutely fun and they're sexy as Fuck. Especially Michael Caine. This is peak Michael Caine. And I know what you're thinking. Hasn't there always been peak Michael Caine? And the answer we're, is yes. We're, we're <laughs> I would say that we've always been in peak Michael Caine, but throughout peak Michael Caine, there has been some low Michael Caine. I think for the most of the Jaws 80s. Four. And yeah, most yeah. of the 80s, Michael Caine wasn't <laughs> peak Michael Caine. I'll grant you this. I'm just, even Michael Caine would grant you that. I remember when he finally won his Academy Award. It was for a film called The Cider House Rules, which he no, no, don't... He, he'd already won for Hannah and Her Sisters. Oh, that's right. And but... he wasn't there for it, because he didn't think he would win. But he did win for The Cider House Rules. He also won for The Cider House Rules, and he was there yeah. for it, yeah. And you don't have to watch The Cider House Rules. It's, it's a not, shitty film. It's not very good. Uh, but um, he, uh, I remember his, his thank you speech is like, like he's holding his Oscars, like, this is really great. Um, there was a time when I said yes to everything. I made a lot of crap. <laughs> He did. That's and he's like, now that I have this Oscar, like I can be a little bit choosier. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but he, but he still made crap. He still made crap after that too. Yeah. yeah but um, anyway, uh, the original Italian dub it was remade with this version with like Mark Wahlberg and Ed Norton and Charlie Theron, and that's a perfectly respectable heist movie. Okay, it's not great. It's fine. It's it's entertaining. You can watch it and enjoy it. Compared to the original, it's shit. Like, that's how good the original Italian job is. It's a 60s palooza of colorful cinematography and costuming. Uh, Michael Caine plays a guy who, at the beginning of the movie, he gets out of prison. And his a, a girlfriend picks him up in, I think, a stolen car. And it's super sexy. And she takes him to it. What do you want to do first? First, I want to go to a tailor. And they put him in the sexiest fucking suit you've ever fucking seen. And then she says, what do you want to do next? And then they go back to hotel and he fucks her and several other people <laughs> at once. And then after that, he's like, okay, got that out of my system. Let's rob Italy. And so he's got a plan. <laughs> Not the whole country. Well, it's... It's stealing basically the gross economic product of it. But mm -hmm. um, he's got a plan to steal... Like, tons, literally tons of gold mm. in the middle of, like, a, 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 they would call it a football match. Americans would call it a soccer match. So, huge crowds, basically daylight robbery in the middle of everything. And the plan is to do it using Mini Coopers. Which are adorable little cars. They're adorable little cars. Um, 
And so most of the movie is about prepping that, coming up with, you know, enlisting everyone for the crimes. There's this weird conceit where, like, the main guy, uh, um, it's not Cam Freddy. Who's the guy Cam Freddy works for? Well, in any case, the, the, the main, like, crime boss is, like, the warden of the prison he just got out of, and he's got to, like, convince him to, like, sign off on this weird universe. You can tell, like, Guy Ritchie, like, saw this as a kid, and he was like, I'm going to tattoo this into my DNA. It all culminates in easily the the funniest car chase anyone's ever done. And that's saying something. There have been really good funny car chases. We're talking about what's up Doc here, for Christ's sake. Uh... The the Mini Coopers like they drive on top of buildings, they interrupt weddings, yeah, they do all on staircases. Yeah, 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 it's just absolutely incredible and elaborate and wild. It's got this awesome theme song, uh, which a lot of people think is called the Self Preservation Society because they repeat it over and over again. But I think it's actually Get a Bloom and Move On, uh, and it ends. And I'm not if you've never seen it. All I'm going to say is this: it ends with maybe the best cliffhanger. Because you'll you'll see what I mean, and the actual ending of that movie has led to like logic problems that mathematicians have tried to solve, <laughs> just because they somehow find themselves so screwed mm. in this most unexpected way, and it's perfect. Like, how do we end a movie this freewheeling? You don't. Sure, yeah, <laughs> you just got to find a way to just stop yeah. it. Um, we, uh, we talked about this movie, we reviewed mm-hmm. it, um, I think we did this one and the remake, like, in the same podcast once, several years Something similar, back. yeah, um, yeah. I think you uh, hadn't seen it yet. I hadn't seen it before then, yeah. and I watched it, and, uh, and we talked all about it. Yeah. You brought it up a couple of years later, and I claimed with a, a great deal of confidence <laughs> that I hadn't seen it. I had, I wrote a, I recorded a whole podcast about it. Yeah. And you said, yes, you have, we talked about it, I wasn't, wasn't convinced. Yeah. So, clearly this movie didn't stick in my head very well. That's a shame. Yeah. That's a shame. Uh, that doesn't mean it's bad. Maybe it's no. just something to do with well, my brain. It's an effervescent uh, kind of film. Like yeah. it's not, It doesn't have deep themes. Like, it's I, all mood. I remember, it's, it's vibes. It, it is it's all vibes. vibes. Uh, and and I, I remember, like, individual scenes and other mm. things start to connect. And there's, oh, yeah, I guess there is a whole movie in my brain somewhere. But I remember more details about the remake. Yeah. <coughs> Bless you. The, you know, well, the, did you, you saw that one first, though. To be fair, so that's probably <coughs> bless you. Excuse me again. The, the Italian Job is one of those movies that when it came out, I, I, I'm trying to remember the details. I think it didn't do great in America. It did okay overseas. And then gradually when they started doing like, oh, what are the best British movies ever made? The Italian Job kept creeping up that list like every decade <laughs> until finally it's considered just an all-timer. Mm-hmm. And I think it is. I think it is, you know, when we think about movies like from history, we tend to think about, oh, like... Oh, it's so timeless. Mm. No, this is very specifically of its time, and there's a lot of movies from the 60s that are very specifically of their time, just like any other decade. Some of those, you you look back and you go, oh, well, I'm glad we grew up. This one, it's like, oh, the 60s were neat for a minute. <laughs> the 60s were awesome. I want to go back. Uh, well, I, I had I had one from the 60s, that it's a mad, 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 mad world. Fair. That's uh, Can't go back. A, a, a light, light and bubbly. Mm. Uh, you had The Italian Job, that's light and bubbly. I, uh. I have another film from the 60s that uh, shows you how much the 60s fucking sucked. Ah. And it's Lindsay Anderson's film, If. I've never seen If. All right. Um, if is about a British boarding school. The worst place imaginable. <laughs> All these students sort of come back from their winter break, and everything's really terrible. The, the headmasters at this school have 
uh, and, and I'm not really sure exactly how sort of like the the authority structure works in, in British schools. I've seen it in mm. movies, but I couldn't say. Yeah, and, and the movies always kind of assume that the audience knows what's going on. So the details remain a little bit obscure. Um, but evidently, like, the older students are, like, they're higher ranked almost militarily yeah. than the younger students. So there's a, a group of students that kind of have school authority over others and can actually like meet out punishments, that kind of thing. Yeah. And this causes like a lot of resentment. The kids aren't being looked after. Uh, and it sort of starts to show that British boarding schools are a, a haven for fostering violence and irresponsibility. Mm-hmm. So these people, these kids all hate each other and uh, it, they start to um, like giving give each other these like unfair punishments. They're just constantly treating each other incredibly cruelly. Yeah. Uh, the headmasters have no power or any interest in interfering yeah. with the sort of uh, antagonism that's going on between the the students. Yeah. Uh, late in the film, one of these groups of students orders another. Uh, is like caught doing something, some malfeasance, and they're ordered to clear out a basement room in the school. And what's in the school but a bunch of military-grade weapons. It's just guns and mortars down there. Oh, that's not good. How do you think this film ends? Pretty badly, I <laughs> yeah, imagine. The, the, yeah. end, the ending of If uh, is is pretty notorious um, because it ends with a gun battle at yeah. a school with the students shooting teachers and shooting each other. Um, and the, the and just like the Italian job, it ends with kind of a cliffhanger. It just sort mm. of zooms in on Malcolm McDowell's face. He's one of the, the more put-upon kids. He's got a gun. Yeah, he's very young. And, McDowell, and, and he's just sort of firing, and that's kind of where it ends. Yeah. Um, it's kind of unfortunate that that film that was made in England in 1967 mm. remains relevant in America in the 20s. Yeah. Uh, the idea of a school shooting was seen as like the most grievous horror back in 1967. Well, it still it's is still a grievous horror, yeah, but, but now it's just common in real life. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really terrifying. And if is incredibly bleak, mm. um, Lindsay Anderson also did a film with, uh, Malcolm McDowell called Oh Lucky Man, which is essentially, mm. um, the Condide story. Ah. This kind of like lighthearted, uh, character who suffers through this, uh, these picaresque uh, adventures where he's constantly being sort of put upon and tortured, yeah. uh, but remains upbeat throughout. Uh, if is not upbeat. Hmm. If is incredibly downbeat. Uh, if is really a difficult sit. Uh, and I feel like it's delving into parts of the adolescent mind that uh, I think we all can maybe relate to and maybe don't want to acknowledge mm. how when we we've reached a, we, when we reach a certain age, we do indeed have the potential to be destructive. And that's not just the way you feel when you're adolescent. No. Uh, that's also, you know, if you want to go sort of the fantasy route with it, that's kind of what the X-Men is about. X-Men comics are about adolescents yeah. who suddenly found themselves <clears throat> destructively powerful. Yeah. Like, I have laser beam eyes, that kind of thing. Uh, this is a little bit more about how if we can if we can allow ourselves to go unchecked and behave in what we think is an adult fashion that leads directly to death and directly to violence yeah. um it's it's very very harsh it's very very good uh malcolm mcdowell has always been great like he started oh, yeah. he started pretty young he proved that he was really good really young uh i think a lot of people sort of focus on his earlier films, because that's when he was doing a lot more intense dramatic work. He was doing a lot of uh, edgy stuff, like stuff yeah, that was still controversial like today. Like if you watch, film. if you watch Clockwork Orange today, mm. it's still intense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
you watch some of his more recent stuff though and, and a lot of it's like goofy horror movies fell into zombies plays a lot of, genre stuff. Plays a lot of yeah, villains yeah, yeah. yeah he he never seems like he's sleepwalking through it no he's always given his he's always, always great in. actor he's a great actor one of my favorite uh malcolm mcdowell appearances was one i didn't expect he's in an episode of south park uh oh yeah he's, 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 he's in the, the great expectations he's the episode. narrator of great expectations and uh, he's sitting there in a chair live action yeah and it's he's, really also, jarring he's, and he's got like, like he's got the suit on he's looked very nice he's like today i'm going to read to you and he's very, very well, plummy well, about what, it what he says first is hello well, I'm, I'm a british, british person, person. <laughs> Doesn't say I'm Malcolm McDowell. I'm a British person. <laughs> well, yes, you are. But so he, he clearly has a wonderful sense of humor. He's got that kind of that yeah. smirk and that's that spark. Oh, even at his age, he's too, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's worth going back and watching something like If to see what his true range is, because yeah. he did some pretty dour and, and downbeat movies. Um, if I'm... is excellent. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. I've got two dour and downbeat movies, which is a little off-brand for me. Uh, but honestly, I, I can't decide which one is bleaker. So I'll just go with the one that came out first. Um, maybe the most, if you're, if you're trying to come up with a list of the most like bitter movies, mm-hmm. just in general, um, or just bitter, uh, like American storytelling of like the last 30 years, uh, you're going to run into Neil LeBute. <laughs> <laughs> you chose in the company of men. I chose in the company of men, which was, Neil LeBute was a, uh, well, he still is. He's a, he, he started off as, a, he, he wrote plays. Hmm. And they were these very, like, in-your-face, you know, controversial, challenging plays. And then uh, he made his first movie, uh, which was called a, In the Company of Men. It's 97, that movie came out. Yeah, and uh, it stars, I don't know, who's the other guy? It stars Aaron Eckhart. And I'm trying to remember the name of the other guy. Hang on. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, Aaron Eckhart and Matt Malloy. They are businessmen. Mm-hmm. And they're going on a business trip. And we meet them as they're on their business trip. They're going to go to this other like branch of the company. And they're here to like just sort of stay there for a few months and like get this thing back up on its feet. They're just here to, you know, whatever. It's all generic business. The business is not important. What is important? Well, it, it's important that it's like yuppie business. It it's is. like soul sucking, meanningless business. Yeah. What, what the most fo- important thing, though, is at the beginning they're both talking about how their their pe- the women of their lives just left them. Mm. Uh, Matt Malloy is particularly devastated, and Aaron Eckhart also uh, says his, his girlfriend well, left him as well, and they're very bitter and very cynical and sexist about women. Uh, Aaron Eckhart's character is a lot more forthright about it, whereas Matt mm-hmm. Malloy still thinks he's a good person. But either way, they decide they're going to make themselves feel better by finding a woman at their new office, someone who's like kind of like a wallflower, mm-hmm. someone who's maybe not like you know but in- uh, th- doesn't have a full social calendar, and they're both going to show her amorous romantic attention 
They're going to try to ask her out. They're going to make her feel good about herself. Uh, they're going to try to become like the person that she's dating. And then their plan is we're both simultaneously gonna, we're gonna yeah. simultaneously at the same time break up with her as hard as we possibly can in an effort to destroy her. To deliberately hurt this person. We're just going to no. find an innocent person and we're going to destroy them. Now that might sound, to some people listening, like a thing that you can't believe people would do. I've known enough people who were awful, who were bullies, who were cruel, that I hear this premise and I think to myself, yes, people would fucking do that, unfortunately. And so, but these are our protagonists. Mm. These aren't, they're the villains, sure, yeah. but they're, um, but this isn't from her perspective. This is only from their perspective. And we see with this methodical, banal, daily approach, how one guy who is pretty much knows he's a piece of shit and one guy who's in denial about how much of a piece of shit he is mm. go out of their way to be the worst men possible. And uh, the comment there, of course, is it's called In the Company of Men. Mm -hmm. What do men talk about when it's just men together? Yeah, and also and, it's uh, business, the business. Of and the, well. Yeah, the, it's a, it's the, the business meaning. of it. Yeah. Um, it would make a great double feature with American Psycho. Oh, yeah. Um, it, yeah. In that uh, this soulless world of corporate greed, which is overrun by males, mm -hmm. uh, lends a, a sort of freedom to the worst male impulses. Yeah. And the deliberate uh, need to hurt women. Yeah, specifically. Uh, this movie was really controversial when it came out. I oh, remember yeah. uh, seeing it when it came out and how uh, poor Aaron Eckhart was so good in the movie that uh, people were coming up to him and hitting him. Yeah. It's like, I hate you. No, you hate my character. He's a villain. I was just playing a character. I'm actually... Yeah. Aaron Eckhart, by all measures, is actually an incredibly nice guy. Mm -hmm. Um but, like, he would say, no, I was just playing a character. They turned to him and say, no, I hate you. Yeah, because they were they mad at him for playing that evil character mm. so effectively that they believed So it. effectively and so believably. Yeah. And, uh, and that was, his, that was like, his breakout role. I don't mm. think... It might have been his first movie. Like, he, he was really nobody before that. that. that that's, yeah. yeah, it was sort of his big breakout. And, yeah. uh, uh, and a lot of people argue, and people have said this about all of Neil Abiot's films, uh, that are about sexist, abusive characters. Mm -hmm. And some people feel that Neil Abiot himself is trying to advocate for sexism and abuse mm -hmm. like that, that he somehow approves of the evil that he depicts in his movies. Mm -hmm. I, that is definitely not the case. I've, I haven't seen uh, every single thing he's done, but I've mm -hmm. never, he's weirdly comfortable getting up close to these people yeah. and like treating the audience like they have earned a sociopath's trust. Mm -hmm. And that is a very uncomfortable position to be in. I think that, and he, he mellowed out, like over the years and he well, made he, more movies that are not as in your face he, he started to make like uh, some other genre films he made a comedy film called Death at a Funeral uh, which mm -hmm. was a remake of, uh, of a Frank Oz film yeah he made uh, uh, Lakeview Terrace which is a thriller with Samuel which, which I didn't see but I heard that was very very he good he made that very bad remake of The Wicker Man uh, when <laughs> which, I remember hearing Neil which is, which was going to do that and I was like that sounds yeah. interesting I wonder I bet that could be good and I was wrong on that it's, bet. I lost that bet. It, it's pretty terrible. It's it's pretty entertaining. Um, no, it's not. If you if you've seen the the There's like best of compilations on YouTube, you have seen the best. Yeah, parts, you don't though. need to see the whole movie. That's literally all the good stuff in like a two and a half minute chunk. Um, but I remember he followed this movie up with a film called Your Friends and Neighbors, which had a really incredible cast. I had like Jason Patrick and which ben is, Stiller. Which is, is an excellent film, but golly, it stings. I, I don't know. I'm not even sure I think it's an excellent film. I honestly mm. think that was him... 
trying to see how far you could go. Like, oh, oh, you liked that? You liked In the Company of Men? I'm going to give you the most vile fucking thing I can think of. Jason Patrick's character mm. in Your Friends and Neighbors is one of the most despicable human beings ever captured on film. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I know what I'm saying when I say that. He's that fucking awful. Um, and I honestly don't consider that film to be made towards any much greater end than that. Mm. Uh, whereas I feel like In the Company of Men is more focused and it is much more... Uh, um, it's much more of a salient expose of misogyny, yeah. casual and and well, I outright. Think, you know? I think your your friends and neighbors. Uh, Neil Butte has a very bleak worldview. You can tell mm-hmm. through his movies. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't pay, place a lot of trust in relationships or romance. And I think your friends and neighbors is kind of his magnum opus because he is looking mm-hmm. at uh, three couples yeah. uh, who are dysfunctional across the board. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that works for any of these characters. They're they're shall they're callow and horrible, but they're also like kind of comfortable upper middle class people. Yeah, they're definitely no one's hurting for money. Yeah, yeah. No, no one's hurting for money, but they all just hate each other. And I feel like that was his thesis that everyone who talks about how the world is full of love is just full of hate that all of these things are going to break. And even when you're trying to engage in sort of like zesty infidelity, even that is broken. Mm -hmm. There is no way for humans to connect. And, uh, it was exhilarating to see in 1998. I remember I, I'd forgotten about this, but uh, the, the the score was by Apocalyptica, and that was yeah, the introduction the, to Apocalyptica. Mm. But here's a bit of trivia. I, I, I had I had the record before that movie came yeah, out, so I felt fucking awesome. felt pretty uh, pretty fucking smug about that. Rules. But uh, here's actually a bit of trivia I did not know about your friends and neighbors. Mm. This was the first movie reviewed on Rotten Tomatoes. No kidding. That was the very first movie they ever had on Rotten Tomatoes. Was uh, your no, friends no. and neighbors? Yeah, Weird. I mean, I remember uh, there was some controversy with that one too. That it was, they were talking about rating it NC seventeen for dialogue. Yeah, like and the, honestly, <laughs> I, just I get for it. Dialogue. Honestly, like it's one of those. The, the dialogue is such where you're just like, I'm not sure why a, a young person would need to hear that. Yeah, like yeah. I'm not. I can't think of like a justification where like I'm going to bring my kids to see your friends and neighbors. It's not ever intended for them. Yeah, there's no justification. <laughs> my parents dropped me off to see this movie. Um, me, me too, but I, I was in college at that I, point. I was in high school. I was still too young to see it. Hmm. They just let me in. <laughs> they didn't give a fuck. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, Jason Patrick has a speech in that movie. And I'm just slack-jawed the entire time. Hmm. like, the fuck is this film? <laughs> anyway, we should move on. What you got next? What's your next pick? Let's see. Uh, do I have anything that bitter or strange? I, I guess one thing pretty bitter after this. I, I guess I kind of do. Um, this isn't really bitter, but it is quite strange. Um, and it is about uh, sort of misery although this is a much more of a hollywood drama it's um hmm. david lynch's inland empire uh, i almost picked this it's a great pick uh, inland empire I, I feel like it's one of david lynch's more underrated films because it's one of his least scrutable yeah uh, and that's saying a lot because he's, he's made films like Eraserhead. um but inland empire was a film uh where david lynch kind of finally hit his stride in the way <laughs> he likes to make movies okay i was about to say uh because you, like you look at the made films, a lot of masterpieces before this. Absolutely, okay. he did, and I, right. I I love even the movies people tend not to like. I love Lost Highway, Same. for instance. Um, I think every one of his films is totally I love worthwhile. Dune. I, I'm a big I fan love of Dune. Dune. He hates Dune, and I like I know. Dune. He's wrong about uh, that. 
He's one of the two filmmakers we'd probably argue with. We'd argue with David Lynch about Dune, and we've already argued with Alan Arkush about Caddyshack Caddyshack 2. Caddyshack 2 is a fine film. It's better than the first, and Alan Arkush disagrees with us. (laughs) Virulently. He wrote in to tell us we we were wrong about liking Caddyshack We told him that his film was okay, and he said, no, it's not okay. That's a bad (laughs) film I made. Um, It was a great moment for us, professionally. Honestly, Uh, a high point. That and Kermit, those are the two. But yeah, you you look at David Lynch's movies, and he's he has just impeccable uh, filmmaking style. He oh, knows yeah. where to put the things. He knows how to cut and edit. Yeah. Um, he, and the, they had a distinct way, style. From the way the he wields his photography yeah. and shadows and light, just everything is so beautiful. And uh, with Inland Empire, he moved to digital cameras. Yeah. And everything, and this was 2006. So everything was still kind of light and grainy. It looked really kind of cheap and insubstantial. Yeah. Digital cameras uh, weren't good at mimicking cinema stock yeah, yeah. at and this point you either so uh, made something look like crap or you made it look like digital but david lynch was always really frustrated making his movies because he would write a script and he would have to stick to it while he was shooting which meant he didn't have a chance to really sort of explore his ideas that came to him yeah while he was shooting very and extemporaneous always, as a yeah, filmmaker and he, yeah. he, he always he, and he talks a lot about ideas and where it comes from he's a very big on transcendental meditation mm. and pulling ideas out of the ether and just having these things you know these uh, artistic thoughts and being able to express them immediately. And so when it came to digital cameras, he could finally do that. Yeah. He could go, he could say, I had an idea last night. I want to just shoot that today. Yeah. And he called up Laura Dern. Guess she wasn't busy. Yeah. It's like, Hey, you want to come over and shoot something? She'd say, sure. They go into his backyard at 7 PM. Yeah. She'd put on a nice uh, dress and she'd sort of like walk through the woods, like, and like the plants back there. And then they'd go into a small room and she'd give this really long, intense speech about being an abused sex worker in Poland. Yeah. Has nothing to do with any other, any of the other scenes in the movie. Well, that's not strictly true. It's the movie within the movie. Hang on, hang on. Uh, as he kept on doing these things, sort of piecing these things together, he took shorts that he'd already shot for his website. Mm-hmm. David Lynch was one of the first filmmakers, as, as far as I can recall, who just started making exclusive web content. Yeah. And he had to subscribe to At David least established Lynch. established filmmakers, yeah. anyway, yeah. So he's making these short films and putting them just on his website. He put some of those in this movie. And he started cutting these things together, and a film started to form. Yeah. Like, it was mostly shot before he started figuring out what this movie was going to be about. Uh, and the premise uh, starts to come out, and some other actors start showing up. Um, uh, Justin Theroux is in it. Yeah. Uh, Henry Harry Dean Stanton is in it. Yeah. Uh, and it's about and uh, Jeremy Irons plays a filmmaker. Yeah, who's trying to make a film that had been shot partially years before, but mm. was never completed because there was some sort of curse on the movie. Yeah, it's about uh, it's and, a Hollywood movie about mm. a cursed production and a remake of a cursed production that is itself also cursed. Yeah. And, the Frogate is and, also cursed. And, and Jeremy Irons is like, and yes, and in that mysterious David Lynch way, fa- way says, they found something inside the story. And that's all we get in terms of the, the ex- explanation of the curse. Yeah. And so Laura Dern is the actress who's starring in this cursed remake. And at some point in the movie kind of disappears into the story yeah she she enters into the movie but not in the way not in like a last action hero kind of way no 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 not, like, not she, in a cute like, way like she turns into this abstract concept that starts floating through all these weird ideas that are floating yeah. around inside the movie and we get to see every bit of it in uh, some she's a sex worker and some she's the actress again and over the course of this very long film it's, it's as long as it's a mad 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 world <sighs> Uh, we find that David Lynch is actually making a movie about how great Laura Dern is. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, let's be fair, is true. It's true, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Agreed. And, and he uh, he even ran an Oscar campaign for her by getting a lawn chair and sitting on Sunset Boulevard with a live cow mm-hmm. and a big sign that said, for your consideration, Laura Dern. Yeah. Uh, and when people stop to ask, why do you have a cow? He says, well, in order to make cheese. Okay, stop. <laughs> <laughs> That the cheese comes from the milk, and the milk comes, and it all has to come, it all starts from the cow. Yeah. Like, thanks, David Lynch. This this movie, uh, I missed this movie in theaters when it came out, mm. and then it was really hard to find a home video for a long time. Mm. And now it's now you can get it, and you should absolutely get it. And I feel like there are two David Lynches. Hmm. There's accessible David Lynch and inaccessible <laughs> David Lynch. There's David Lynch making allowances for the audience and giving you something to hang on to. Something that looks like a conventional like, story. I, I, yeah. think, I think the perfect example of this is the dichotomy of Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, hmm. which in many ways are very similar films. Yeah, they both, both revolve around crime. They both revolve around doppelgangers. Uh, identity is a theme of both of those. Yeah. The difference is Mulholland Drive, without being too explicit about it, does hand you an interpretation of the events. Yeah. You can go beyond that if you want, but the movie wraps itself up in such a way that if you're paying attention even a little bit, you go, oh, I get it. Mm. Lost Highway doesn't do that. Lost Highway no. doesn't give you the, the key card or the, the codex or the mm. whatever. You're, you're, you're just fucked. <laughs> you're just, you can piece it together if you really, really try, but there's no guarantee you're even remotely on the wavelength David Lynch is on. Yeah. And... Inland Empire was his follow-up to Mulholland Drive. And I feel like it was one of those things where people thought, oh, he's the Mulholland Drive guy now. Like, he's finally, like, in this, like, great state where he's very David Lynchy, but I can get it. And then Inland Empire came out, and everyone's like, I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, you remember when the Coen brothers followed up Fargo with the big Lebowski, uh-huh. and people were disappointed? Because it was just sort of like a, a quirky comedy. Oh, they just did a quirky a... comedy. Oh, what were you, you guys were doing great. What happened? You made one of the best comedies of all time. That's what they yeah. fucking did. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck your problem was. I'm sorry it wasn't Fargo 2. Um, Inland Empire is an absolute masterpiece. And I could say that about most of David Lynch's work. Mm. Uh, it is fucking great. It is absolutely it's, terrifying. There's one shot of Laura Dern. But it, it's impenetrable. It, oh, it's very And, and, and it's, it's made very that way. Yeah. It's, it's going to be hard to get through. Um, but it's going to be full of moments you can't forget. There's one <laughs> shot of Laura Dern, which is like in all like the publicity stuff, but you don't understand the context or rather the lack thereof. So you have no idea how horrifying it is in the moment. Oh, with, with the, the face. big face. Yeah, yeah. face. Like, uh, it's just like, in the moment, I was like, God, I, yeah. I'd seen that shot a hundred yeah. times. It, when it, when just, it sh- I never saw it in context. It, it shows up in the movie, and it was one of those things where it shows up, and I'm looking at it, I'm terrified. Yeah. And it, it wouldn't, it wasn't until after I was looking at it for a few seconds that I thought to scream. It's like, yeah. No, ah, like, that's like, yeah, nightmare it, shit. It kind of, it kind of, yeah, it's, it's, and that's David Lynch shit. has always been really good about sort of, the language of nightmares. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, this is a, the, the film is ultimately about how much actors give for us. Yeah. And how, I, I think that face actually does have a really important meaning. Oh, it does. Especially, uh, especially, you know, talking to Laura Dern herself. Cause mm-hmm. it's, it's largely about Laura Dern. Yeah. It's and, about, it's and, about and, that celebrity. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, big double feature with under the skin. Uh, under the skin, yeah, about yeah. sort of that that kind of actorly identity. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. There, there are plenty of great films like about actors. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, yeah, Inland Empires, I, I think, is about actors mm-hmm. and less so about the valley. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have. I think. I think it's an LA movie, if memory serves. I have one more like really bleak movie 
Uh, and this is a movie... I was really baffled by the reception this movie got because it got, like, good reviews mm. out of, like, some film festivals, but not, like, super glowing. And then it came out, and people were like, yeah, it's pretty good. And then I watched this, and I'm like, this is a masterpiece. Mm. This is an absolutely incredible, like, engine of suspense and drama and horror. And it's incredibly subtle as well. And you're never quite sure where it's going to go, even when you think it's following a formula. And that's Karen Kusama's The Invitation. Oh, The Invitation's really great. Oh, I yeah. didn't even have that on my list. I yeah. should have. There's a recent movie called The Invitation that is completely unrelated to this, and it's about vampires. I actually still haven't seen that one. Oh, oh it's bad. I heard it's it was bad. bad. Yeah, it's, I'll, it's, I'll it's, get to it someday, but it's not It's yeah. not a high priority. It's a Dracula story. It's so badly. There's, there's yeah. a, it's one of those things where they thought they could shoot in shadow, and really you just can't see a damn thing. It's, it's really dumb. Don't see that. For, yeah. The 2022 version of The Invitation? Don't say that. Well, it's not a version. It just has the same title, just so we're clear. Um, The Invitation uh, uh, stars Logan Marshall Green as a guy who, uh, he's divorced. uh, And he's divorced after the unexpected death of their very young son. And it's been a few years, and he has been invited to his ex-wife's house. She's remarried. For a dinner party. And he goes to the dinner party... And something's wrong. He can't put his finger on it's, it. It's it's not wrong. It's off. There's something like, off the, the, about like, the vibe in the room. Like he is knows. Off and... he, you, you ever you've been in a situation before where your hackles are raised. You mm. know that there's something incorrect. Someone isn't acting right, or why is that door closed? There's something inexplicably off, and you cannot get comfortable. You're waiting for another shoe to drop, or worse you're ready for violence to occur. Most of the movie is just him not being able to put his finger on it. And we are looking and at we it. we feel it. Oh, we yeah. feel that kind we, of paranoia. We totally yeah. get it. But here's the thing. The movie could literally, because, you know, there's some movies that it's like, oh, will they or won't they? And if they don't, there's no movie. Mm. You know, he's like, oh, well, then if nothing happened, if there were no vampires, then we're not, why are we even here, Fright Night? <laughs> you know that doesn't make any sense here if the entire movie was he was wrong mm. it still works because it is such a potent excellently executed story about grief and social insecurity uh, about maybe my wife has moved on and i haven't and i'm not nearly as okay as i thought i was that is entirely possible. That is entirely a plausible thing that can yeah. happen here. Or if he's right, even if he's right in a way he's not expecting, you also have a great movie. Hmm. Both of those things are, are equally true. But the, what makes that so masterful is that even though we're picking up on, hey, where is that guy? That guy was supposed to be here an hour ago. and We keep mentioning it. Why hasn't he shown up yet? And in our head, we're putting our pieces together. We're saying, oh, maybe that guy is like, it's like rope. Maybe he's dead in the house for all we know. It could be anything. But if you actually outline it and say everything that's wrong, there's nothing wrong. Mm. <laughs> it's not possible. Like it's like nothing is, is right. And I won't tell you where it goes, whether it's all in his head or not. I will say it's satisfying regardless. And the last shot will fuck with you. It is so fucking grim. I will just say that without yeah, telling you where it goes. It's just like, Oh I, fuck. I, I, it's so, this is one of those films that you want to give the least amount of information about. Yeah, yeah, um, but it, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it it develops. I guess 
the way the conversations develop are very kind of like light and beatific at first. Mm -hmm. And it starts skewing in immediately skews into like suspicious dark territory. Yeah. But not in like a a horror movie kind of way. It's It's just the dread. It it becomes much more palpable. You begin to understand these characters really, really well, even though they start to say some pretty shocking things. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's all stuff that like could be benign. It, it's stuff that could be benign and, in fact, yeah. is common and familiar yeah. in a lot of circles. Yeah, it's true. And uh, might even be beneficial. Or comforting. It, it's yeah. So we're getting something that we can understand is dark, but we also very familiarly understand that darkness yeah. and what function it plays. Yeah, uh, And again, is, I have to be really, ble- yeah, you gotta really be careful uh, it's, vague about it. It's not a movie with so much incident that we can describe a lot of it and still mm-hmm. leave a lot left. It's all uh, mood. It is a really delicate tightrope walk. Mm-hmm. And Karen Kusama, who you know started out strong with a movie called Girl Fight and was very well respected, then she did Eon Flux, which frankly is not a good movie. But no. then she came back with Jennifer's Body, which wasn't really appreciated when it came out, uh, mm-hmm. and has since gone on to be a horror classic. And then she did, I think this was the next movie she did after that. And she's, I think she just keeps proving herself mm-hmm. masterful. And ironically, well, what was the one she did where like Nicole Kidman was a corpse? Um, Nicole Kidman was a corpse. Oh, she, she wasn't um, literally uh, corpse. Uh, Destroyer. Destroyer. Yeah, yeah, she did a cop movie called Destroyer, which I think was a mixed bag, but Nicole Kidman's great in it. Well, Nicole Kidman like wakes up in the back of a car and she looks dead, and my yeah. theory of the movie is that she is dead. It's like, very you know, plausible. It's very plausible. Like that, that's not the literal plot of the movie, but I know people that's who love that like. movie. I respect it more than I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was gonna do. Uh, for Universal after they had done that like new modern retelling of Visible Man, hmm. she was gonna do Dracula. Yeah. And then they decided not to do that. And fuck you, I want to see her Dracula <laughs> so bad because I think she'd nail it. I think she'd do something very exciting with it. Um. So anyway, I don't know what she's up to right now, but I hope she's doing amazing things because this movie's a masterpiece. Oh, uh, I think she's working. She's working on something notable. I hope so. Right now, because just yeah, yeah, Destroyer was her last movie. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a minute. It's been a minute, and I know she was working on Dracula. And that's like a big studio thing, and probably took a oh, she's over been time. doing TV. She uh, mm. she did episodes of like Yellow Jackets, and, okay, and Billions. And oh, Dead that's Ringers. right. I remember people telling she, me she, she did Jackets, the new yeah. the new Dead Ringers TV series. Oh, the one with uh, there you Rachel go. Weiss, I, heard good, so. I heard good things about that actually. All right. So yeah, she's been doing a lot of TV. She's not hurting for work. Good. Uh, I got a horror movie too. Ooh. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. I'm actually uh, surprised it's not your number one. <laughs> I know exactly what it is. It's, it's in the mouth of madness. Yeah, it is in um, the mouth of madness. Uh, John, John Carpenter's in the mouth of madness is terrific. Uh, it's a horror movie about an insurance investigator played by Sam Neill. He is hired by a publishing firm to go find a missing Stephen King-like author. Yeah, the best-selling is, horror author in the world is uh, missing. Just John, before the publication of the new book. Yeah, he has a new book about to come out, and they don't have the manuscript yet. And uh, they, the publishing house needs to find him, so they hire uh, Sam Neill to go get him. He teams up with uh, Julie Carmen, and they go on a road trip because uh, it seems... On his book covers, he has left a clue, and uh, Sam Neill is able to find out. And sort of like how Stephen King has Maine, um, uh, specifically the town of Castle Rock. Sutter Kane has Hobbs End. That's the the uh, Sutter Kane, who's played by Jurgen Prochnow in the movie, uh, is sort of like a combination of Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft. Like his stories are really 
uh, more about, about like elder the, gods and you know yeah. the, the earth that is, concepts that, is, that cannot be properly described and will drive you mad to yeah, even yeah, think yeah. of them. That's more of a Lovecraft thing. That and uh, and indeed, it's been said throughout the early parts of the the movie that. Sutter Kane's books are having an effect on his less stable readers. Now, we know this is going to go bad because the movie opens with... Uh, it's a flashback movie, and it opens with the Sam Neill character being committed to an asylum. Something really horrible has happened to the world. Yeah. So, uh, something horrible and, and is like, going and to like, happen. And like, uh, is it... Um, John Glover plays the, uh, 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 the, the, mm. the doctor, uh-huh. and a, a cop comes in to interview Sam Neill. And, it's, uh, and Dave, Glover... David Warner is the... Co- is yeah. The, yeah. It, Interviewer, yeah. And uh, uh, John Glover's like, is it true what they're saying about what's happening yeah. out there? He's like, things must be getting pretty bad out there, he says. Yeah. Mm, mysterious. <laughs> so, so the world is falling apart. And the world is falling apart because of Sutter Kane and the effect his book had on the world. Um, it's a metafiction. It's mm-hmm. a movie about the movie. It's the making of the movie itself. Mm-hmm. It's a movie about the function horror stories play on our minds and mm-hmm. how it actually warps our perception to the point where the world itself changes mm-hmm. uh, and reality begins to change. People can actually turn into monsters because these concepts are so strong. Uh, when you see that when you're 16 years old, that oh, yeah. shit will fuck you up. That changes uh, you. It's yeah. a very formative film for people like us. Yeah, yeah. but I, that movie came out, I saw it when I was about 16 years old and it, it just blew my mind. It's like, this is what movies can do, man. It's like, <laughs> most people see like, you know, Citizen Kane when they're young and it impresses them so much. I, I got a, a John Carpenter film that was released in like early February. Nobody cared about this movie. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a hit. No, no, no. A lot of people considered this to be like part of John Carpenter's fallow period mm-hmm. where he was making stuff like Memoirs of an Invisible Man or Escape mm-hmm. from L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mostly movies that have been two, largely reclaimed, I feel. He, you know? well, he made two movies in 1995 because he made this one and he also made uh, his remake of Village of the Damned. Now, the remake of Village of the Damned does suck. Uh, I, I, re- I remember, I remember liking it at the time, but it's been a while since I've seen it. I so rewatched it recently. I'll take your it's, word for it's it. It's really unusually bad for John Carpenter. Yeah, he, not everything he did was a banger. Um, no, but it's but it's, but it was pretty good. Here's though. the thing: John Carpenter is such a master of just sort of cinematic craft, uh, just where to put the camera and just shoot as efficiently as possible. That he always gets me. Even in his bad yeah. movies, I'm really sort of hypnotized in his weird way. Like yeah, even so, even something like Escape from L.A. I feel like In the Mouth of Madness is one of his more stylized pictures. It's a mm-hmm. lot more abstract than a lot more of his movies. It's more, uh, it's sto- more narratively ambitious. Films yeah, too. it's yeah. often very straightforward. Because yeah, uh, the Sam Neill character goes to this town that is essentially fictional, and all the you know reality is kind of falling apart. And, and after a while, just things start of r- running off the rails in a way that I think is very appealing. I know a lot of people don't oh, like. Stories that kind of fly apart like that. I've already admitted that that's one of my favorite kinds of stories. Ones where yeah. like everything is gradually going mad. Yeah, yeah. And when exactly did it go mad? Mm. Can I even pinpoint it anymore? And there's the, just the sound design and some of the creature design in this. Oh, the uh, monster yeah. effects are really cool. And, and they they're clever in that they shoot the monsters like with quick shots and like like kind of in mm. shadow, so you can't really get a good look at them, and that makes them scarier. And he finds a way to do. There's these really obvious things like monsters and things, mm. but then there's also like elements which they're kind of in your face, but they're like weirdly abstract he does something uh, i won't ruin it for you but there's a moment where sutter kane says did i ever tell you my favorite color is blue (laughs) and it's like jesus fucking christ like how did you do that with the color blue like it's really quite stunning john carpenter is 
he hasn't had enough movies, as far as I'm concerned, that allowed him to go completely wild mm. with just his creativity. And I think Big Trouble in Little China is one of them. I actually think Escape from L.A. is one of them, for better and worse. <laughs> uh, and In the Mouth of Madness is definitely one of them. There was really no holding him back. Like, if he had a budgetary problem, you can't tell. Like, it's all <laughs> yeah, ambition. Yeah. It's all there on the screen. Um <laughs> The works of Howard Phillips Lovecraft are often deeply problematic, but at their core, there's you, you something... Can, that, you can just say he was a virulent racist. He was a virulent racist, fine. and he didn't have great ideas about women either. And look, that's not the thing that people key into, I think, to this day on H.P. Lovecraft. What mm. it is, is this idea of ineffable horror. The horror that cannot be comprehended. The idea that... It's so terrifying that your brain can't fit. It. Well, the idea yeah. is that the universe sees us as less than nothing. Mm. We are we are a, a little tiny bug on the windshield of the universe, and human beings have ego. Yeah, we can't deal with that. That's something that really is terrifying, and very few authors have been able to uh, capture that. And um, Lovecraft was one of the first ones who made it like their bread and butter, uh, and. But when we turn Lovecraft into movies, the weirdly abstract ones almost never turn out good. Uh-huh. It's the ones where he had a lot of plot that tend to actually work best as movies. Mm. Movies like Reanimator or Dagon or From Beyond. All, all the Stuart Gordon ones, basically. Uh, this <laughs> isn't a Lovecraft adaptation. It's Lovecraft-inspired, but it's maybe the film, more than any mm. other, that gets the Lovecraft vibe correct. Yeah. The idea of madness. The idea of... Uh, going insane well, that, as a result of the horrors you have yeah. witnessed and could not understand. That's something that's really hard to pull off, and I think we need to give Sam Neill a lot of credit for that. Sam Neill did it really yeah. well. John, Carp John yeah. Carpenter has always been a very workman-like director. You talk to him about the movie, and he wouldn't go into concepts like this. No. Uh, just because he's not interested in talking about his movies fact, that way. the commentary track for this movie is one of the driest commentary tracks. It's like, oh seen. yeah, it's like the weather was okay that yeah. day. We oh, I thought nice I could... lens. Oh, yeah. fuck, I don't care, John. Talk, me about... <laughs> talk about the themes of the movie. No, he Jesus. doesn't care. Doesn't care this about is, that kind this of stuff. might have been the first montage I ever filmed. Okay, that's almost trivia. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to find the quote from the Sutter Kane book that uh, Julie Carmen reads at the end. No, I can't. I don't yeah. have that off the top of my head. I'm sorry. He's um, like, like Trent stared at the edge, like stood no. at the edge of the rip, like he's looking through a rift in reality. Yeah, yeah. It's like a he did not shriek, but the horrors shrieked for him. Uh, and this is the the line I, I liked that choked on the glistening white bones of countless unhallowed centuries. Uh, that kind of shit. That's uh, shit. that's that's my jam. Uh, yeah. I, I I love the language of it. I love mm. uh, that that it's a horror movie about horror and the effect of horror and what mm. horror really truly is about is sanity. Yeah. And where does that come from? But perception. Yeah. Uh, the idea that horror isn't about fear of being harmed. It's not about the monster hurting you. We've all been hurt. We've all been physically harmed before. Some of us, perhaps very grievously, yeah. but we can all relate to getting hurt. Yeah. Uh, people react to pain differently. That's not necessarily like a universal horror. The thing that really scares me is the thought of losing your mind. Yeah. Of not being able to trust anything about what you think or perceive. Yeah. And I feel like that's the kind of horror that In the Mouth of Madness is, is tapping into. And that 
terrified me mm-hmm. when I saw it as a teenager. It's like, yeah. so everything I see isn't, oh shit. There's no <laughs> like, guarantee any of that has and, any basis in reality. And, yeah. and, and the, you start thinking about, wait a minute, but that's what all fiction is, isn't it? It's trying to like change my mind a little bit. It's trying to put these things in my brain. Oh shit, everything's making me insane. <laughs> It's really great. I love In the Mouth of Madness so much. Uh, I, I also have a film hmm. uh, about uh, someone investigating something like beyond hmm. mortal conception. Uh, but it's very different in tone because it's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I had to put a fun one on. I like Last Crusade. I like Last Crusade too. You know, when I was a kid, the general consensus was that Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade had a great ending, but it was the least of the three. You know, Raiders was this, like, really tough guy, you know, really inventive, had a lot of great, incredible action sequences in it. It kind of, like, revitalized the concept of the action movie when it came out. And then Temple of Doom uh, was considered, like, the raucous, naughty one. Like, the one with all, like, the weird bug Mm -hmm. jokes and It's a bad movie, by the way. Oh, oh, it has some incredible sequences, but it's also really gross and not particularly well thought out or put together uh-huh. like i will take individual pieces of temple of doom and i'll put them up with spielberg's best stuff uh-huh. i will not take the whole fucking film. <laughs> the film the film is not great last crusade on the other hand even though many people said oh it's a little repetitive of raiders i don't care about that because i think it's got its own thing uh-huh uh, it is what it sounds like indiana jones is on a mission and he's going to find the holy grail Okay. Which is really, if we're speaking in archaeological terms, really the holy grail of archaeology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here's the here's the trick. Here's, thank you. His yeah, dad... I, I, you can't hear my eyes rolling on the microphone. Yeah. But the yeah. trick is his father, who was also an archaeologist, mm-hmm. uh, and is estranged because it's an early Spielberg film, uh, has gone searching for it as well, and he's gone missing. Ooh. So now he's got to investigate, he's got to find his father and find the grail before the Nazis find the grail, because you do not want Hitler getting immortal life. <laughs> right. <laughs> we definitely don't want that. We, we have to make sure we find this thing before Hitler does. Um, and it's a wonderful premise. Uh, it's one of those great movies where you can kill as many bad guys as you want because they're Nazis. <laughs> it's he, fine. He kills like 13 people in oh, that yeah, movie. Tons. He throws, he throws three... a guy off a Zeppelin. And, it's, and it ends with a joke, no ticket. And mm. it's like, yeah, he's a Nazi. It's fine. <laughs> he kills three Nazis with one bullet in that movie. I know. It's they're really... all standing in a line. He fires a bullet and just penetrates through all of their bodies. Yeah. But um, but it's got really memorable action sequences. The opening is is a delight. The opening is River Phoenix as young Indiana Jones, and he stumbles across on like a Boy Scout trip yeah. to like nearby caves. Uh, some guys who are about ready, who they're going to steal an artifact from. Like, and his whole thing is, it should be in a museum. It shouldn't. You, cut the colonial bullshit. But okay, <laughs> that should be in a museum in England. <laughs> yes, where it belongs. <laughs> Next that to, part hasn't aged next to everything great. else we've plundered. <laughs> that part hasn't aged great, but uh, he means well. And uh, well, the cr- it's the Cross of Coronado. It's a Spanish yeah. artifact, if I recall. So yeah. it should be in a yes. Spanish. Museum. At least it should be in a Spanish museum. But anyway, they're going to steal it. They're going to sell it. They're assholes. And uh, he steals the Cross of Coronado, and he gets into this incredible chase on board a train. 
in which every single bit of Indiana Jones iconography somehow forms in the exact yeah, his, same his, day. His fear of snakes, the scar on his chin, the which whip. Harrison Ford actually has that. Yeah, yeah. the whip he uses, and the whip actually is what gave him the scar the first time he used mm-hmm. it because he didn't know what he was doing. He, he it ends with him getting the hat. Like it's just. It should be ridiculous. It should it's be like really every, corny, but it's yeah, it's every not. prequel, like bad prequel thing, but it works because they do it in five minutes and then it's over. Yeah, it's not the whole fucking movie. You can't do that. But if you do it quick, you can get away with it. And of course, it's River Phoenix, who uh, bless him, was just unbelievably charismatic and talented. Um, but the thing that this has that Raiders Ark, the Lost Ark, doesn't have, mm. uh, is Sean Connery. Yeah. And Sean Connery playing a dork, which is great casting, uh, <laughs> gives Indiana Jones someone to play off of where the power dynamic isn't weird and it isn't sexist, which is really bad in Temple of Doom and not great in Raiders. Yeah. Uh, they have a great dynamic together. They're incredibly funny together. They're well-written characters who like present, who like approach all the problems that they face totally differently. It's really, really smart. And the climax, where he has to go through a series of death traps in order to get to the Holy Grail, and then there's an, another like trick on top of that, is just a masterfully executed adventure sequence. Yeah. It's just delightful. <clears throat> I know some people think that this was the one that got like too silly. Oh, golly, golly it no. Doesn't. It's, um, it's a little funnier, I'll grant you, but it's legitimately funny. Uh, uh, the, I guess what they did with the Denholm Elliott character, Marcus Brody, he's like yeah. a little bit more of a buffoon in the third film than he... The first one is like a little bit more of just professorial. He's got two but, scenes, yeah. basically three. He's got three scenes, two of them are exposition, and mm-hmm. the only line that suggests even vaguely that he's capable is like if I was younger I'd go with you mm. and it's like that doesn't mean he'd be good at it <laughs> that's you inferring mm. that the movie that's not actually in well, the text it, that it, he's, he would be really capable yeah, readers of the lost ark it's like the, the search for the ark the search for the divine and and in, in uh, Last Crusade, it's like, does anyone here speak English? Like, it's really... Well, no, because it's a great build-up. He's like, oh, he's got the he's got the map to the Grail, and he's got a one-week head start. Oh, he, he knows he knows 50 different languages. Yeah. He's got contacts in every village from here to Cairo. With a little luck, he's got the Grail already. No, cut hard, to him in a crowd. Cut, does anyone yeah. know English? But yeah. it works, though, because, again, it's actually... It actually is a comment on the whole colonialism yeah. aspect, yeah. where it's like, just because they're archaeologists does doesn't mean they're good at it, well, or they know the, what they're the, uh, doing, or that they're doing in it fact, right. In uh, fact, the, the next, uh, that same scene, hard cut. Does anyone here speak English? And then he says, or ancient Greek. I know that. <laughs> I yeah. think it's fine. I think that's a, that's a that's a situation in which people had headcanon for so many years, that actually seeing canon, mm. that didn't assume that every idea you had made up in yeah. your head uh, was real kind of messed with people's heads and they're still mad about it. But I think if you actually look at the text, it's fine. You look at Raiders of the Lost Ark and that that's, I mean, it's pretty, pretty impeccable action picture. Uh, yeah. Just wonderful characters, wonderful set pieces. Yeah. There's a, and, uh, there's a few and things good, that have an age grade, but it's mostly fantastic. Mostly fantastic. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, Marion was underage when they had their first affair. That's yeah. who he is. That's, that's what we have to deal with. Pretty fucking Indiana creepy. Jones. Let's not pretend it's, otherwise. It's, it's, uh, it's creepy. It was weirdly common in the thirties. Um, the movie set in 36, I think. Around there. Uh, but I think it has a really important religious underpinnings. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, 
first of all, it's it, it's about a, a Jewish artifact, the Ark of the Covenant, mm-hmm. actual uh, object mentioned in the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's all kinds of scholarly writings about like the the history of the Ark of the Covenant and where it was, who had it, at what points in history. Uh, people know about this better than I do. Uh, it's about a Jewish artifact in a movie by a Jewish filmmaker mm-hmm. that when violated by Nazis fucking kills them. Mm-hmm. It's using archaeology and movie magic mm-hmm. to kill Nazis. Yeah. Good. <laughs> well done. No notes. <laughs> and, and, you know, because it has sort of this religious significance though, it gives the, the movie this like otherwise light adventure film, a little bit of heft, like yeah. it's a little bit of actual, like, religious underpinnings to it yeah you go to indiana jones and the temple of doom mm-hmm. that is about bullshit <laughs> it's, the, it's the thuggy cult the, thu- which is, the thuggy which is, yeah the cult is, of the thuggy which is a real thing but it, it doesn't they turned it into this of, really they, they took the movie version from gunga din more or less which and, is and, a and, movie and that the, is uh, also that's very influential in the way that it handled adventures very influential on indiana jones also has an age great yeah yeah and uh, a lot of people don't like Willie Scott. I think she, she's fine, but she takes up too much of the movie. Mm, I, uh, they, they, they use her as a joke. Yeah. Oh, there's a girl here. And I'm like, that. she does that job. And mm. she does it great. Kate Capshaw. She's fantastic mm. in a thankless role. Uh, I mean, she, she A role cle- that's designed to make her look bad. She, she clearly thought uh, Spielberg was, was okay after that, because they got married a couple of years later. Yeah. But... Um, uh, and they've been married ever since. It's, yeah, uh, I guess I guess they're doing fine. So they're like, doing yeah. fine. They're doing fine. Yeah. And she clearly, you know, do, isn't bitter about Temple of Doom. Yeah, uh, but it also, maybe it comes up when they fight. I don't know. <laughs> you you poured the bugs on me. No, I actually saw a wonderful interview with Kate Capshaw, uh-huh. and uh, she she said that she knew she was going to shoot the bug scenes, so she took something. She didn't specify what it was. <laughs> took a pill or something and she arrived on set and everything was fine it's like how are you doing you're gonna do the bugs today we'll do the bugs today like she's really taking taking the piss out of herself she's, yeah this is all from from her own mouth uh it's like we're gonna pour some bugs on you okay like she, yeah. real, so she's okay with yeah. a, anything she wants that's not even that's not even remotely the weirdest thing that happened on the temple of doom set no because the no, barbara no. streisand thing <laughs> over at the Barbra Streisand. This was a legend. People thought this wasn't true. Uh, there was a scene in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where Harrison Ford is like strapped to like a rock or something and he's like, you know, right. being hurt by the bad guys. And when they were on set, Barbara Streisand showed up while he was tied to that rock in like dominatrix gear right. and like, like play whipped him saying things like, Mosquito Ghost didn't make enough money. <laughs> <laughs> like... Like all these like like just really weirdly personal things, and this was like a rumor, and like there was no evidence, and then they found evidence. Someone took a video. It's not a clear video, but it's real. Oh my god, it's the best fucking thing. Some of those some of those rumors are true. Are, are true. Um, the rumors about Kim Cattrall on mm. on uh, visiting the set of Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered mm. Country, wearing nothing but her Vulcan ears, uh-huh. and taking and, photos on the bridge. Yep, that's real. Yep, she's and then she's Leonard confessed Nimoy that, destroyed them. She, yeah, he found the pictures like, oh, these can't get out. So I think he burned the pictures or he took Nimoy. them away. Maybe they're like in like a safe in Nimoy's estate somewhere. Who's to say? But yes, Kim Cattrall did indeed post nude on the set of Star Trek Six. Weird shit happens on these sets. Yeah. Um, 
where were we? Temple, we Temple, Temple of Doom. Yeah, Temple, yeah, Temple of Doom is, it, it doesn't have that kind of mystical heft, though, that Raiders of the Lost mm-hmm. Ark does. Because uh, it is about Hindu artifacts, but it's not about Hinduism. No. It doesn't deal with the spirituality of this. No, it deals the, the with actual, like, this, like, this mystical, evil cult mystical aspect, aspect of it. it, of it, yeah. Yeah. it though it does yeah. affirm that that, theoretically, that like this like non-Christian religion is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does yeah. do that as well. It, but I, it does I wish so, I think, it, in a less reverent way. I think I, we can agree I, on that, I wish it was like, more yeah. reverent about Hindu, yeah. Hindu mysticism and all the rest of that. Yeah. And then we get to uh, Last Crusade. It's the big Christian artifact. Yeah. It's the Holy Grail. We actually meet like a, a holy knight at, at one point in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, like from the Crusades. Uh, so that actually, the mysticism is back again. It has sort mm. of this this uh, eeriness about it. Mm. And then there have been two other movies that also don't have that. So the first and the yeah. third are the effective ones, they're the good ones, because of that, because it actually has a little bit of reverence for the objects that they're trying to find. Yeah. yeah. I, the I, the I Dial agree, of Destiny doesn't have that kind of well, reverence. The Dial of Destiny definitely doesn't. Yeah. Like it's, it's Honestly, all of the famous artifacts in history and mythology you could have chose, you chose the one nobody heard about or cared about. Well, it's okay if nobody heard about well, it. No, no, Teach us about it. That's okay. No, but there's but give it a little it bit of... Like, heft. Yeah. It's like Archimedes did this once. It would be like if it was all about like... Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's flying machine. Like, that's neat. Don't get me wrong, but there's no heft to that. <laughs> you said Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> you know, when Leonardo DiCaprio invented this flying made machine, a flying went machine. Back like, no, Leonardo da Vinci. And he flew it with Tobey Maguire over at Italy. Leonardo da Vinci famously sketched an idea for a flying machine. Mm. Like, what if he made it? That's actually been in movies before. Mm. But, like, I, I don't think you could build a whole Indiana Jones movie on that because mm. there's n- that artifact doesn't have deeper meaning yeah and i don't think archimedes dial does either well, and certainly the, the movie doesn't go to any lengths to make uh, it, it so it, it helps that um you know the ark of the covenant they talk a lot about how, mm-hmm. about it holy grail kind of know about that going yeah, into that's the pretty movie. famous to everybody uh, I think. and yeah. yeah if they had done something like this is the dial of destiny and here's what it's said to have done and you mm-hmm. know, what, what, so tell the story yeah, they don't yeah tell, the story. tell the story first of they all don't and, tell um, the story very well it sucks anyway no. we should move on uh, all right uh you have three left i have three uh, I, well technically i have two because you already know my number one yeah right. I, what, I guess what, you, got, you got two left. Uh, i guess i have four left um see, mm-hmm. no i got one. you got it it happened one night it's a mad 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 world you got incredible shrinking man which you know yeah. whatever uh, if inland Empire, okay because yeah, we know about incredible shrinking yeah, so we'll um, talk about it. Uh, I'll, I'll keep it light because you did indiana jones and last crusade this is an adventure film it's another comedy mm-hmm. uh it's mike judge's idiocracy oh. from uh, 2005 his reaction to uh the george w bush administration yeah uh Mike Judge, very uh, cynical Gen X filmmaker, was looking out at the world the way it looked in the early 2000s and felt that there was a very powerful streak of anti-intellectualism. How uh, smart people and intelligence wasn't being valued and only violence and reactionary uh, language was. He was also being very critical of the George W. Bush administration. I think he felt that the president at the time was kind of an idiot. He was often criticized. He was not alone on that. Yeah. And so he made a comedic science fiction movie Mm. about what the future would look like from that perspective. What if we were to cast this idiocy he saw in the modern day forward like a millennium? I forgot the actual amount of time. It's a long time. It's it's like several centuries. It's enough time for the name of Fuddruckers to change into something I don't feel comfortable saying. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the idea that... uh, And and in an opening montage, he says... um, like that uh, Harvey Danger lyric, only stupid people are breeding. The Cretans yeah. cloning and feeding. Yeah. Um, 
And he, uh, so it's like, what, ha- what happened if society just devolved and only idiocy was rewarded evolutionarily? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it's about an average guy who's played by, uh, Luke Wilson and he is cryogenically frozen. He wakes up in this future. He's an, av- now he's the smartest man on the planet. Yeah. And he's, but an, he's, he's, and he's an kind unremarkable of, intelligence. Yeah. He, he's not yeah. like a smart guy who would know how to like traverse this. He's just sort of an average guy. Yeah. But now he's sudden, all of a sudden he's the smartest. Yeah. Just by dint of everybody else being really dumb. And yeah. what, what we have learned is in the future, not only is everybody dumb, but everybody's dumb because of marketing. Uh, this is a movie that is very critical of commercial language and in fact, that's the only way people know how to speak. There are people named Taco Bell uh, <laughs> in, in this future. There's a guy who just said, after every sentence he says, he says, brought to you by Carl's Jr. Because every time he says it, he gets money. Because every, yeah, he gets a little bit of money. Uh, and um, the, the world is going to pot because uh, a, 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 an energy drink company, it's called Brondo, it's like Gatorade, yeah. uh, has replaced all water. Yeah. Like all drinking water has been replaced with this ener- this green energy drink. And for some reason, all the crops are dying. And it's yeah, a mystery. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, we're, we're and, giving it all the Brondo we can. It's got electrolytes. And, <laughs> and, it, and they keep on repeating the, the catchphrase, like, Brondo, it's got what you crave. It's like, well, you can't feed it to plants. Oh, it's got what plants crave. What is that? It's got electrolytes. You don't know what that is. It's just a marketing phrase. Um Maybe that's why it wasn't marketed well. <laughs> <laughs> this movie was not it, a it was It was dumped into theaters. Yeah. Nobody saw this thing. I was lucky to see it when I did. and Because, uh, yeah, the, the studios just hated this thing. I, it got a bit of a cult following thereafter. Well, it got a huge uh, cult following yeah. eventually. And it's one of those things that it just it's hard to happen nowadays. Mm. Where it's Something found... grows that organically. Yeah, and, and it's really, really difficult. Mm. But, like, you know, at the time you could make all your money back on home video. Mm. And Idiocracy just started growing. Yeah. It was just one of those movies where people were just like, you should see this. And then everyone just gradually saw it. Mm-hmm. And now it is considered a bit of a comedy classic. Uh, I, I, it, it does play into what Mike Judge's uh, main strength is, and that's the essentially the, the quote, the stupid joke. Mm-hmm. Like, look, look at how stupid these people are. This is yeah. the guy who made Beavis and Butthead, after all. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the humor is derived from just sort of the dumbness of the characters. Um, uh, and, and of course one of the jokes is, you know, in the future, these people who are like of low intelligence speak in a very crass fashion. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of cussing and a lot of really insensitive language, but that's kind of part of the joke. I feel like he handles it deftly, even though a lot of the language itself is a little gross. Um, it's, it's one of those things. There's so many jokes and there's a lot of the jokes are low hanging fruit that like, Mm. There are going to be some misses, and some of the misses aren't going to age very well. The overall vibe of it mm-hmm. is one of those things where well, I feel like in our, in our cynical moments, it feels like we're already there, man. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's why it connects. It, it Everyone gets the sense at some point, whether it's accurate or not. Yeah. Am I the only smart person in this room? <laughs> Am I the yeah, only uh, person who isn't being swayed by bullshit right now? And if, sometimes if, it's true. I mean, this was 2005, so he couldn't make jokes about, like, Twitter.com, but if he could, oh, it, yeah, uh, that would have been a big part of it. I'm surprised um, there hasn't been a TV series yeah, or a the, remake or a sequel or something. It feels almost inevitable. Yeah, uh, and uh, and in fact, idiocracy, the word idiocracy and the concept of idiocracy, the fact that um, we're sort of in, in this slippery slope of de-evolution yeah. has been embraced by a lot of cynical, like, 
fringe artists. Uh, yeah. It became a big part of the Church of the Subgenius. Uh, what do you think Devo was all about? Uh, this idea that everything is in a state of ent- entropy. That's no, something that Devo was about rebellion. Oh, were they? <laughs> <laughs> They're called Devo for fuck's sake. <laughs> Devo means togetherness. Devo means family. <laughs> it's getting late and we're a little loopy, I think. But um, uh, um, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it, Idiocracy is really terrific. And uh, it it was it's now been listed alongside things like 1984 mm-hmm. as, as legit uh, like, sci-fi. Like, yeah. like a, a seminal word on the, the actual de-evolution of society. Well, what it is, it's a sci-fi concept that hadn't been done to death before, and once it was coined, everyone's like, "That's that sounds about right. Yeah. It's like, and it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while, it's like when George Romero put the whole zombies as we know them together in Night of the Living Dead. Everyone's like, that feels like that would probably happen. Yeah. yeah, so it's one of those. Um, my next pick is, actually, it's also a bit of a downer, and it's one of those movies where I saw this movie when it came out, and I liked it. Uh-huh. I didn't love it. And then a couple of years later, I realized I think about this movie almost every day. It just wormed its way into me. And that's Inside Lewin Davis. I like Inside Lewin Davis a lot. It's a great movie. So Oscar Isaac plays the title character. His name is Lewin Davis. Uh, he is a folk singer in like the late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. Or I think it's early 60s. Um, and he's not a famous folk singer. And he's talented. He's got talent. And he loves it. And he loves it. It's his life. It's his passion. It's what he wants to do. He refuses to do anything else, even when it looks like his career is probably dead. He was part of a duo. His The person he was in a duo with is, is no longer with us. And he's struggling to make ends meet on his own. And he's doing things like, okay, I'll play backup guitar in this thing just to make ends meet. And the song is nonsense. And he's offered, we can give give you like a hundred bucks now, or we can give you like 5% of the royalties. And he's like, this song is crap. I'll take the hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. And then it's the, it, then it's a number one hit song. Yeah. And, uh, he's, and that's, in, and that's, that's emblematic of his entire life and career. Mm-hmm. Every single thing he does is well-intentioned. He's trying to look out for himself. He's trying to get his music out there. And every single thing he does dooms him to mediocrity. Yeah, and, and he's bitter about it. Oh, and his, and his bitterness is what gets him in trouble. It's like, mm. I don't know, I don't want to do this anymore. And, oh, well, your attitude hurts you more. Yeah. Um, the Coens ha- are very, very good about cursed figures. Yeah. Characters who, uh, they don't even necessarily have to commit any kind of transgression. Oh, a serious man. They're, yeah, serious man. He does man. not deserve you, any of the shit that you, happens you, to him in that movie. You just open the door at the wrong moment and your life is just a, a deluge of shit. Yeah. And... Inside Lewin Davis, I've heard, is a painful watch for actual musicians. Yeah. Because it hits really close to home for a lot of struggling yeah. musicians. Yeah. like you It's work not a comedy con- for them. You work constantly. You're putting yourself out there. And you're in these weird situations with bizarre people. And you underestimate you. And you get a chance. You get a break. And you shoot your shot. And it's like, eh, what else you got? Hmm. No! <laughs> that was it. That's what I had. That's all I was. I put everything in that. The, the ending of this movie, I'm not going to ruin it, but the ending of this movie, like the last needle drop, is so depressingly perfect. <laughs> it's just such a fucking absolute bummer of a thing. And it's just, it's just the universe hates Lewin Davis. Yeah. But he's a noble figure. He's 
trying and he's fucking up but he's fucking up because he's trying and it really tests our sense our, our belief that if you have a passion if you believe in art if you want to like make art your life if you just keep trying you'll get there not necessarily mm. it's a little hypocritical coming from the coen brothers i'll grant you but still not necessarily not everybody who pursues something is able to make it their career and even fewer people are able to make it big. That is a very difficult pill to swallow. Mm. And he refuses to swallow it. <laughs> and life just keeps shoving pills down his throat. Like, but at least he, swallow the pill! But at least he's got a cat. Speaking he does of, have a cat. Speaking of forcing pills down Oh, the cold cat thing is, is wonderful and mm. also weirdly depressing. But not in like a oh, super dark way. It's I, just, in, inside Lewin Davis is one of my runners up. It's really, really, really good. Guy. It really just grew on me over time. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about my next film because I talked about it just recently. In fact, on our last episode, we talked about sci-fi horror. Yeah. But oh, I have to two bring episodes two episodes yeah. ago. Oh, that's right. Uh, uh, we did Christmas, but before that, we did sci-fi horror, and I talked about Island of Lost Souls. Yeah, it's great. I love Island of Lost Souls. Um, it's really scary. Speaking of Devo, it's Doctor Moreau by H.G. Wells. It it, yeah. it really is. Yeah, it's um, uh, Charles Lawton plays Doctor Moreau in that mm. version. And he's been using vivisection to uh, transform animals into people, yeah. but it, but they're grotesque and scary. And here's um, the thing: when you update that story to today, and people have in a variety of ways, it's just like, oh well, we use genetic manipulation. Mm. It's so much worse when he does it through surgery. Surgery, yeah. It's so much more disgusting and cruel that he mm. does it through surgery. Well, and that's the point. Like it's supposed, yeah. to, like I'm, I'm cutting, and it's painful, and it hurts yeah. these people, and. Uh, there's animal people hybrid things yeah. that he's making, and uh, and you can't romanticize him. He's a monster. No, so they're like part human, but they're part animals, and they're trying to figure out what it is to be human, and that's really terrifying. Like mm -hmm. they get some human concepts, and the Sayer of the Law is played by Bela Lugosi. Yeah, uh, is the one who says, you know, we we no longer walk on four legs. Like they want to. We yeah. don't eat meat. They want to. Uh, you know, are yeah. we not men? And of course, you yeah. want to yell, "We are Devo," but. Yes. Uh, no <laughs> what what are you like they're not men but they're not animals like they're in this weird sort of uh uh grotesque halfway space between the two species and what do they and do Dr. they rebel devo mm. is about rebellion <laughs> devo is about standing up for what's right devo is about one love uh oh wait that's bob marley um i confuse them a lot yeah, they're very similar <laughs> they both put out records that's true. Yeah. Other than that, they're yeah, very different. I, I love it when... I would love to hear Bob Marley sing Whip It. That would have been amazing. Wow, what a cover, right? <laughs> anyway. Uh, but, you know, what is Dr. Moreau in all of this? He... Okay, people talk about how Dr. Frankenstein didn't know what he was doing. Dr. Moreau did. Yo, yeah. And that makes him he scarier. He eyes wide He's like, yes, open. I'm going to do this. And it, it's just about his his uh, dominion over the natural world. It's mm -hmm. based on all these colonialist instincts. Mm -hmm. All of the evil is concentrated in those one character. And of course, he's Charles Lawton, so he can handle a character like that. He's one of the greatest plum. actors who ever lived, mm -hmm. period. That's just, and he knows exactly what to do uh, with the character. It's a scary movie. It's, it's creepy. Scares me. It's 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 a it's it's a movie from the early '30s, and I think yeah. it's pre-code. But yes, '32. It came yeah. Out. So it it has more freedom to do be like fucked up than future horror movies, but it's still by today's standards, viscerally, it's pretty tame. It's it's atmosphere, it's sweat, hmm. it's pain, 
it's cruelty. Hmm. It's it's wrong. Yeah. You watch this movie, I'm like, this is this is wrong. Like this is not like, oh, let's watch this horror movie and be entertained. No. Let's watch this horror movie and be fucking freaked out. It's great. It is amazing. We did talk about it recently, so I understand wanting to move on. Uh, and on that note, uh huh. my number two, which is very close to my number one, and maybe it should be, but I made my choices, uh, is a film I've talked about constantly and doesn't need too much conversation. Uh, but it's also a film that, even though it's kind of on the nose, I can't imagine this top ten list without it, and it's a wonderful life. Uh, yeah, I, I figured you'd choose it. It's, 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 it's which, almost a cliche. Which means you have two Capra films on your list. Oh my god, I yeah. didn't even think about that, I do. <laughs> but um, it's a wonderful life. It's a bit of a cliche now. People call it one of the best movies ever made. They're right. Uh, it was a huge bomb when it came out. It, that doesn't matter over time, does it? Um, well, first first of all, I don't like the idea that if something bombs, that's somehow reflective of its quality. I, well, that's I'm, I'm illustrating that point. It's a wonderful life. It was a box office disaster. It mm. destroyed a studio. Uh, and now it's considered one of the best movies ever made. Time is the greatest arbiter of all. Uh, I've often said, time is the only critic that matters, is the film I've said often, and I think it might be a little reductive now, but whatever, I've committed to it. Um, but, um, yeah, you, you know the story. Uh, James Stewart is a small-town man, and he had big dreams. He always wanted to leave town and pursue adventure and travel, and life kept getting in the way, and he ended up being stuck exactly where he was for his entire life. And it wasn't all bad. He met the love of his life. They had wonderful kids. They had friends, but they were always barely scraping by. And on Christmas Eve, something happens that's going to leave him destitute, possibly in prison. Not his fault, but he is on the hook for it. And he is pushed so far, he's been putting his own needs second, third, fourth, dead last for his entire life. And he was okay with it when it seemed like life was going okay. Uh But when after everything that he's done, after every sacrifice that he has made, it has led to failure and misery for him and everyone he cares about, he's thinking about ending his own life. And that's when an angel comes to him and says, hey, listen, we've given a lot of prayers about this George Bailey guy. People like him. We should probably do something about this. And the angel comes down and he says, and he says famously, I wish I'd never been born. And he's like, done. And he gets to see, after we've had this long, epically long flashback about his entire life, he gets to see how all of those things that he did, the things that he took for granted or the things that he think didn't matter, mattered a lot. And actually, like, one person has a gigantic impact on everything around them. Your life matters. It's one of the great intervention stories ever told. Mm-hmm. It is a suicide intervention story. Yeah. And it's a feel-good Christmas movie as well. <laughs> and that's a balance that maybe only Capra could do right. <laughs> it is so harrowing and bleak, yet absolutely so hopeful and beautiful mm-hmm. James Stewart it, is a brilliant performer. Everyone say, in it's fantastic. A lot of this helps that it's it's James Stewart, yeah. who's not like he can play dark scenes, but he's yeah. not a dark actor. No, no, famous. Uh, yeah. It's not what he's known for, and he's known for being very lovable. Mm-hmm. And seeing James Stewart fall that low hurts. Like it hurts to see him there. Yeah, um, it's it's just impeccably told in every single in single way. It's an absolute. It's one of the perfect movies. 
Hmm. I, there just happens to be another one that begins with the letter I, and I decided to give that my top spot. Uh, what's your number one? Uh, well, my number one, since I guess uh, yeah, we're there. Talk about the Incredible Shrinking Man uh, is. Uh, Maybe the best movie ever made? One of the best movies ever made? No, you picked a cuter. I picked a cuter. Okay, I picked fine. Kurosawa as a cuter. How could I not pick a cuter? Um, I guess it's like Citizen Kane. Like, you don't need me to recommend this movie to you. Well, it's not as well known as Citizen Kane, <clears throat> unfortunately. At least not here in America. Um, so, maybe not. Maybe it is. It's, amongst it's, cinephiles, it's yeah. well known. But I think amongst casuals, it's almost a it's cliche as... among cinephiles to mention yeah. how good Ikiru is. Um, Ikiru means to live. Uh, it's mm. a film by Kurosawa from 1954. and uh, You may have or, seen its sequel, To Live and Die in L.A. Yes, it was the prequel to To Live and Die in L.A. with all the Devo music. Because <laughs> of all the rebellion. Because of all the rebellion in it. <laughs> this podcast has gone off the rails. Uh, no, it's about an, an average uh, salaryman. Mm. Boring guy. Works in the accounting department. It's played by uh, uh, Takashi Shimizu. Okay. So. a... Uh, Kurosawa regular. Yeah. And um, he uh, learns at the beginning of the movie mm. that he's dying. Mm. He has stomach cancer. Yeah. In fact, the first shot of the movie is like an x-ray of the stomach. And the narrator says, this is an x-ray of a stomach and it has cancer. The guy who, who has the stomach, he doesn't quite know it yet, but he's about to get word from the doctor. And we yeah. cut to sort of the, the doctor's office. And they do it in almost a comedic way. Where the doctor doesn't tell him that he's sick, that he's going to die. The doctor has like these code words. So he's like waiting mm. in, the, in the, the waiting room and another patient says, yeah, if he says, says, well, maybe you should see me in six weeks. That means it's bad. If he says, it's okay, you don't have to do anything to, to change, you don't have to change your behavior at all. That means it's really bad. Of course, the doctor says all of those things. Right. And, uh, you know, the main characters in the front, like just all the hope is draining out of his face. Yeah. Um. Uh, or said, uh, sorry, it's Takashi Shimura, not Shimizu. Oh, I got oh yeah, totally different. Takashi Shimura. I'm sorry, I missed that, yeah. Um, this guy has led such a boring life mm-hmm. that he doesn't know what to do to live it up in his final days. Yeah. He decides, well, I'm going to take some, I have some money. I'm going to skip out on my job and go out and party and drink. But that's not his thing. He doesn't want to party. He doesn't want to drink. Mm. He's not excited by that. Um, he's sort of at a loss to what to do with his life. And he ends up talking to a, a young woman who just is somebody he can converse with for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. It's not really a romance. It does, it feels vaguely romantic, but that's not what this is about. It's not yeah. about him falling in love. It's just about him connecting with another human being for right. the first time. And he works in a, like a city office. Mm. It's you know, pushing papers and working on like city regulations, civic stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then rather shockingly, like before the movie's over, he's dead. Mm. We cut to his funeral. Spoilers. I mean, this plot of the movie. <laughs> and in, in almost a Shakespearean way, we get to know the rest of his life, like the rest of his story through the uh, realization of all his coworkers who barely knew this guy. And they realize what he was doing to finally learn to live. Mm. Are you going to tell them what that is? No, I'm not going to tell you okay. what it is because I think you Good. should discover it on your own. But, Good, because I actually uh, know and I wish I didn't because, oh, okay. it's, yeah. But uh, I think through that sort of these guys, sort of these other salarymen, uh, nameless characters, they're just mm. crowds. Akira Kurosawa was really good at 
uh, directing crowds as like singular characters, groups yeah. of people as the character, um, kind of discover what it is this guy was all about and actually how he had done something really noble and what a good person he was. Mm. That's all we can really hope for, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'd like I remember. More. <laughs> I, I remember. Uh, I remember uh, Roger Ebert talked about uh, Ikiru uh, saying that there are a lot of movies out there that present a philosophy to uh, an idea, an ideal way to live through its characters. Here's, here's some lessons to learn. Here's a moral you can take with you. And those mm. can be very inspiring. Ikiru is one of those few films that might actually change the way you behave mm. and change the way you look at life and change the way you look at yourself. How, what you do is always going to have value. <laughs> I'm going to cry just talking about this movie. Um, that there is something to your life that will touch others, however small it might be. And that is beautiful. And it's important. And it's stirring and inspiring in, in a way that can change you. I want everyone to see this movie. I think a lot of people have. A lot of people like to sort of put it in a context of like Kurosawa's filmography because he's made a lot of great movies Mm -hmm. or uh, where it fits in sort of the canon of international cinema that's commonly discussed in in the United States. Those are dry ways to talk about Ikiru. Ikiru is just a grand work of art. Yeah. Full stop. See Ikiru, please. I hope I've sold it well enough. Of course I put it at the top of my list. My number one was about a shrinky guy. But you know what? It's also profound. It is. Here's, it what, is. here's what I like about it's, The Incredible no, Shrinking I, Man. I love, <laughs> yeah. We're finally talking. I know we've been teasing it for a while. Yeah. The Incredible Shrinking Man is one of the best movies ever made. It really is. Yeah. Uh, is it on par with Ikiru? It deals with similar things. Surprisingly, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, you might be surprised. It's it's a science fiction film. It's by Jack Arnold, who also did like Creature from the Black Lagoon. Like he was known yeah. for these really uh, genre pop, films, really sensationalist genre films, good ones. Oh yeah, I like Creature from the Black Lagoon. Very good film. Uh, what else did Jack Arnold do? He's done some trash as well. But, uh, <laughs> I'll look up. I'll look yeah, up. You, you, um, you're, you're, you're selling this just fine. Uh, but The Incredible Shrinking Man is uh, about a, a fellow who's out on a yacht and this mm. we- mysterious cloud drifts past and it's mm. never explained what it is, but it coats him while he's out on the deck. And is when he gets back uh, on shore, very slowly he begins to realize that he's getting smaller. He's shrinking. Uh, he did two episodes of Holmes and Yo-Yo. Jack Arnold did? Yes. Holy shit. We really got to find that fucking show. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, but he also did It Came From Outer Space, which is a really... Oh, that's a good song. one, that's too. That's a great yeah. fucking movie. He did, the, the, <clears throat> he did some sequels uh, to Creature on the Black Lagoon as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, he did Tarantula. He, he did Tarantula. He did uncredited work on This Island Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just good shit. D- gr- yeah, w- yeah, wonderful uh, 1950s sci-fi stuff. And, yeah. Um, Jack Arnold brings all of that wonderful sensationalist sci-fi uh, pulp appeal to it. So it's actually really propulsive. It's good to watch, even though a lot of it is about this guy realizing that he's getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, and, which is which is much mm-hmm. like David Cronenberg's The Fly remake would be. It's a, it's a metaphor for dying. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, he's, uh, he's deteriorating. He's shrinking. Mm-hmm. And he's literally shrinking. Mm-hmm. And that on one level, there's a practical concern there, which leads to some elements that are vaguely humorous. Like he has, ends up living in a dollhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's, then, that's when he starts getting really small. There's a big really portion small. of the movie yeah. where he's like, he's he's about like three feet tall, yeah. and he's like having to deal with clothes, having to deal with you know getting around the practical aspects. I think that's what Jack Arnold is bringing to it. Yeah, um, he 
he starts to find romance with another small person, a little person. It's like, oh, you know what? I can actually look at you eye to eye. We have something in common. And then after they've been romancing for a while, I used to be taller than you. <laughs> like mm-hmm. he's still like he thought he stopped it. Like, like he, he thought maybe like no, this is yeah. like this is where I'll, I'm very small, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'll just be right here right now. And he realizes he's just gonna keep going, keep getting smaller. And yeah, eventually he moves into adult. He becomes very teeny tiny. Yeah, like a couple inches tall, and then even smaller than that. And then he gets so small mm-hmm. that people can't really see him very well. Mm-hmm. And then he finds himself in a basement. Mm-hmm. Which is a vast wasteland when you're uh, yeah. like a half inch tall. With a giant spider in it, or as we uh, would call a it, a normal spider. <laughs> <laughs> like, and how does he... He's a wonderful water. special effects, oh, too. Very yeah. effective. And that that leads to this incredible fight for survival, and mm. it almost becomes like the movie Gravity, where it's like, why are you even trying to survive? Because I must. Mm. Because it's, it's what I have. It's life. I'm going to cling to as much of it as I possibly can. And the way the movie... Climaxes is full of adventure and mm. monsters. It's great. The way the movie ends, you you already said it, is profound. Mm. It is a literalization of like touching the infinite. Yeah. It was um um before we had a word for it. Uh quantum mania. <laughs> 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 oh you shit. <laughs> Couldn't say it with a straight face. He gets smaller and smaller, and then he meets Kang. <laughs> oh God! Go I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's really, it's really intensely powerful. Actually, I, 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 I cry. I, I cry I, watching this movie. Yeah, I, I wish that those Ant Man movies, like, oh, God. even bothered to like look in the direction of the Incredible Shrinking Man. I, yeah, wouldn't that be uh, great? Um, there, there's, there's a certain. You know, we've got a lot of dramas on our list, and a lot of like broad entertainments on our list, but there's this wonderful sweet spot where Hollywood's especially good at this, but you find it all over the world, uh, where something that is broadly entertaining, that is fantastical, that captures the limits of your imagination. And we're so used to the feeling like that's escapist entertainment. And then you watch this thing, which should just be a B-movie. And it's constructed as such. And it's constructed as a movie, and it works that but, way. Uh, if you if you have no interest in the inner depths of it, it's just a cool thriller. But you know, they, but, it, they, but they had the good sense to hire Richard Matheson, who yeah. would the story this was based on, to yeah. co-write the screenplay. Yeah, and he had bigger ideas. Yeah, and it's, and, and I credit all the profundity to Richard Matheson, probably, the and case. All, all of the cool visuals to Jack Arnold, and together it's just a sublime film. That, that's probably the case. But yeah, it's one of those rare movies where broad bombastic genre entertainment combined with genuinely ambitious artistic filmmaking and attempt to say something meaningful and it manages to be both Mm. and not just equally well but at the absolute zenith of both uh to to quote al pacino what a picture (laughs) uh just incredible Mm. uh okay so uh real fast uh here are the here's the list whitney's top 10 uh, was It, the 1927 silent movie. Uh, it Happened One Night, the sequel to It. Uh, it's a Mad, 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 Mad World, the threequel to It. Uh, Incredible Shrinking Man. Mm. Uh, if, Inland Empire, I don't know why I said it like that, In the, <laughs> ma- in the Mouth of Madness, Idiocracy, Island of Lost Souls, and Ikiru. And on my list, uh, I had I Married a Witch... It Happened One Night, Inner Space, The It-Alien Job, 
in the company. <laughs> I don't know. It's very late, as if you couldn't tell. We're trying, yeah. In the company of men, the invitation, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, inside Lewin Davis, It's a Wonderful Life, and The Incredible Shrinking Man. Whitney, I assume you had some runners up because there's a I, lot of movies to start with I. I did. Um, some uh, other things that I kind of uh, jotted down while making this list. Uh, it follows. Mm, yeah, good uh, it's a good, good uh, ghost story from recent times. Uh, in the Bleak Midwinter, it was released in the United States as A Midwinter's Tale. I've it's never a, seen all of that. It's, it's, it's a fun, uh, kind yeah. of Brana film about a, a country production of Hamlet that goes yeah. very, very wrong. Um, in America, oh, the, the Jim Sheridan movie. That's that's a good a good one. Uh, I really liked the musical In the Heights. Yeah, it's uh, really good. I don't know why people rejected that one as hard as they did. It's really, really enjoyable. They should have released that at the end of the year. That should have been an Oscar movie. It really should have been. They, they screwed uh, that up. Let's see. I, I put down in the company of men. I put uh, the mentioned earlier uh, the Claire Denis film L'Entru, um, Incident at Loch Ness. Yes, it's a really fun flick. Great um, movie. Werner Herzog playing himself. Yeah. Uh, I put Last Crusade on mine. Inherent Vice, the P.T. Anderson film. Very good movie. Uh, so, yeah, really deliberately oblique. I really like that movie. I put Inside Lewin Davis on mine. Mm. Innocent Blood, the yes! vampire film, is really good. Oh my god, I love Innocent Blood. I came very close to putting that on my top ten. Yeah, what a fantastic I, I, vampire movie. One of the all-time great vampire deaths in movie history. And it's the, Don Rickles. The Don Rickles one, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, amazing. Uh, speaking of vampires, uh, Irma Vep, mm. the... Uh, um, one this yeah remake of an old uh, silent classic modern filmmaking yeah. uh allegory invasion of astro monster Got yeah, godzilla yeah. good times and uh and pixar's inside out i think oh, is their, yeah. i think that's their best movie oh, i should have yeah. thought of that yeah, yeah. no that, that should have been my runners up and i think i didn't put it in there mm. um okay my runners up it's mad 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 world okay uh the italian connection which is a if you've never seen it just just see it mm. just you're gonna love it it's so fucking wild it's something like it's the kind of movie that like Quentin Tarantino would tell everyone to see, and then all of a sudden, it's the most popular movie ever. <laughs> uh, the uh, John Ford's The Informer this is a fantastic drama, very, very sad and bitter as well. Uh, Inception is another great piece of intelligent popcorn entertainment. Uh, the short film Isle of Flowers, A I S L E, Isle of Flowers, uh, is a life changer. Um, and I wasn't able to see it again, so I wasn't able to confidently put it in my top ten, but it probably should be. Uh, in the Heat of the Night, great, great mystery movie. The original Invisible Man and the remake of The Invisible Man are both wonderful. Uh, Inland Empire, In the Mood for Love. Uh, the animated film The Illusionist, not the Ed Norton movie. The animated film by Sylvain Chomet. Uh, is absolutely beautiful, and pe more people should see it. Uh, the original Invaders from Mars by William Cameron Menzies is one of my favorite movies of its ilk. Mm -hmm. It really hurt me not to put that in my top ten, but I feel like I talk uh -huh. about it a lot. Uh, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang is absolutely wonderful. Um, really wonderful, bizarre horror movie, I, Madman. On a similar note, the biopic, I, Tanya, uh, <laughs> is, is really, really good. It is really good. Uh, if Beale Street Could Talk... Oh yeah, it's absolutely it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. I in the Heights as well. In the Line of Fire is an absolutely great <laughs> kind of John Malkovich makes it. Man, that's yeah. a really good movie. Uh, let's see. Incident at Loch Ness. I had that. Uh, let's see here. Ba, 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 ba. Infernal Affairs, the movie that The Departed is a remake of, is also mm -hmm. excellent. Innocent Blood, uh, the horror movie The Innocents. It's really fantastic that? with uh, Deborah Kerr. It's a oh, turn, it's turning it, to square. Yeah, yeah, it's really really good. Um, 
Invasion USA. Maybe <laughs> Chuck Norris's most entertaining movie. Oh my That's god, this fucking movie. movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a delight. Uh, another movie that came very close to my top ten, Ip Man, uh, is... Uh, you haven't it, seen that either. Oh, it's I, I know fucking the, great. The Ip Man films are yeah. widely celebrated. The, the first two in particular are great. The first one is a classic, and it's only going to get better with time. Uh, the Irishman. Uh, okay, yeah, the, yeah. The Iron Giant. It Chapter One, I already mentioned. Um... And yeah, that's uh, that's that's my short list. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for joining us. If you want to participate in help us pick the next Iron List, uh, you can do so. Uh, we don't have uh, a, a bunch of options for January, so we're going to leave this open to our patrons once again. Feel free to leave us some suggestions, and Whitney and I will hmm. pick through those and uh, put, make a poll of some of our favorites after a few days. So on our Patreon page, you can leave a comment on this episode. And leave your suggestions for the next month's Iron List. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, once again. If you want to talk about your own favorites in this category, you can send us an email. Our email address is letters at net. We might read your favorites over the air on We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yes. Uh, and we're on social media at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibel. And it is very late, so we're done now. Thank you, everybody, once again. Happy New Year. And that's the list. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.